0: There's been an uptick in COVID cases, but overall that doesn't mean what it used to.
1: All of our tools still work um, as the virus changes, but we're gonna have to keep watching it.
0: Navigating COVID's increases this summer and fall coming up. It's Friday, August 11th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Conservative online media company PragerU admits its goal is indoctrination. Florida teachers are now able to use the company's videos in their classes. Some parents oppose the move.
2: I think it's great when children see multiple perspectives, but if you're pushing one perspective as being fact, that is problematic.
0: Also ahead, thousands of people displaced by the Maui wildfires need to find housing. And the Latino population is the largest ethnic group in Texas. But experts say that growth isn't translating into political power. It's 4.01. The news is first.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The grim search for wildfire victims is underway in Maui. So far, the death toll stands at 55. Airlines are assisting in evacuations, Hawaiian Airlines among them. CEO and President Peter Ingram says the airlines lowered fares to $19 to help people leave.
4: Trying to do what we can in this crisis, which is help on the transportation between the islands, uh, shuttle people out of, uh, out of Maui into Honolulu or to the U.S. mainland.
3: A new analysis shows that fire has damaged or destroyed nearly three-quarters of the structures in the Hawaiian town of Lahaina. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports that the survey was done with satellite data.
5: With cell and internet service disrupted, information about what's happening on the ground in Lahaina remained spotty. But the commercial satellite firm IceEye was able to take a look from space. Using satellite-based radar, the company detected damaged and destroyed buildings in the historic Hawaiian town. According to the latest assessment, More than 1,400 structures were hit by the fire. That's 71% of the homes and buildings that once made up Lahaina. Authorities have said it could take years for the area to recover. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News.
3: COVID-19 cases are trending upwards across the U.S. following a long decline. Here's NPR's Ping Wong.
6: Over the past week, the number of people getting hospitalized with COVID has risen slightly. Deaths have remained low. Dr. Celine Gounder, a physician and senior fellow at KFF, says this uptick in COVID cases is not a cause for panic. And Right now, I would not say we're having a surge. But
7: we know that the fall winter season is where we typically do see an increase, not just in COVID,
6: but also a flu and RSV. Right now, people at high risk and those around them may want to take some precautions like avoiding crowds, wearing masks and using air filters. In the fall, health officials plan to roll out an updated COVID vaccine, along with new vaccines for flu and RSV. Ping Huang, NPR News.
3: Attorney General Merrick Garland's announced he's granted Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss special counsel status to continue investigating the president's surviving son, Hunter Biden. In
8: a July 2023 letter to Congress, Mr. Weiss said that he had not to that point requested special counsel designation. On Tuesday of this week, Mr. Weiss advised me that in his judgment, his investigation had reached a stage at which he could, should continue his work as a special counsel, and he asked to be so appointed.
3: Hunter Biden is under investigation for allegedly failing to pay taxes and for possessing a firearm when he shouldn't have. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up more than 100 points before the close. This is NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Four former foster children have reached a $7 million settlement with the state over allegations of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. They lived with an Oxford couple who are facing criminal charges for allegedly abusing their foster kids over nearly two decades. The plaintiffs accused the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families and several of its employees of failing to protect them despite repeated allegations against the couple. The victims are now in their 20s and 30s. One of them died last fall before the case could be resolved. With the devastating wildfires on Maui, local travel experts are warning about traveling to Hawaii. The fires are isolated to Maui, but AAA Northeast urges travelers to check their flights and hotels for any of the Hawaiian islands. AAA's Chuck Nardoza says people should inquire as to whether their airline is offering a waiver if plans change because of the natural disaster.
2: So not only is it potentially changing your destination or requesting a refund, it could also mean that they will waive any penalties and allow you to change the destination without having to pay the difference
0: in the airfare. AAA Travel says the fires are affecting phone and internet services in Hawaii. A new report shows predatory fish in the northwest Atlantic Ocean may lose 40 percent of their habitat by the end of the century. In some areas, the amount is as high as 70 percent. The study from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution looked at tuna, billfish and sharks. Those fish migrate off the coast of the state. Cameron Braun is a researcher on the study. He says his main goal was to figure out how this would impact fishers and coastal communities.
9: This is an opportunity to use the best tools, the best science at our disposal to kind of be ready for these changes that we're expecting to come. You know, we have a lot of these tools at our disposal now, but they're not really implemented in in management strategies, although that is slowly changing.
0: Braun says we're already seeing the effects of ocean warming. In sports, Chris Sale returns to pitch for the Red Sox tonight after being on the injured list for two months. The Sox will face the Tigers at Fenway. We'll have mostly clear skies tonight, temps in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, it'll be around 85 and mostly sunny. Mid-80s again for Sunday with a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Otherwise, it'll be partly sunny. Sunshine to start the work week on Monday. This is 90.9 WBUR. This
10: is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
0: And I'm Juana Summers. The
10: death toll from the extreme wildfires on Maui has risen to at least 55 people, a number that officials say they expect will rise. And officials are still taking stock of the damage there. Yesterday, Hawaii's governor, Josh Green, said that many hundreds of homes have been destroyed. And while it will take time to know the full extent of the damage, he expects the cost to be in the billions of dollars. Six shelters are open on the island and thousands of displaced people will need housing. NPR's Lauren Sommer is in Maui and spoke to people at an evacuation center. Hi, Lauren. Hi there. Lauren, these fires just moved at a shocking speed. What are people there telling you about what it was like for them?
11: Yeah, I think shocking is really the right word. Um, people are very much feeling that. I, I spoke to several residents from Lahaina, which is the town where the fire was just so destructive and people lost their lives. One of them, um, Paul, who didn't want to give his last name because there's just so much overwhelming media attention, he said the flames are moving incredibly fast.
12: Jump
13: house to house, all the plants, all the streets, the smoke was so big, and actually they were saying the radio remain calm, everything's fine. Well, everything was warning, so no.
11: He jumped in the car and left, but he says he's not surprised that people got trapped, just given how narrowly he got out. Wow. Does he know yet what's happened to his home or the homes of his neighbors? Yeah, I actually talked to him at the evacuation center at Maui High School. There are several hundred people there and there's actually this big TV up with the news playing and it's it's showing aerial footage of what Lahaina looks like now. So that's how we found out that his home is gone. I mean, even as we were staying there, he could point to the screen to show me the exact block which was his and it was just rubble. That's just devastating. Lauren, do we have any idea yet how many
10: people are still
11: missing? There's actually a a big list of names at the shelter, maybe a thousand names on it of people that are being searched for. And and many have been found on that list, but there's still a lot that are unknown. Um, Ted Lusk was searching the list there. He has two tenants in Lahaina.
4: I have a family and uh, the wife is uh, Hopai, as we say in Hawaii, pregnant, uh, eight months now. And we talked to him two days ago, but they had no idea that it would proceed to disastrous effects.
11: He's hopeful they're okay based on where they live, but he's not sure because the power has been out near Lahaina and communication has been really tough.
10: I mean, I think a big question that a lot of people have is just how the fatality count could be so devastating. You work with our climate desk and I know that you have covered a lot of fires. Mm -hmm. Do we know what it was about these fires specifically that made them so dangerous and so deadly. Yeah, I mean, wind was certainly a big part of it. It was at
11: least 60 miles per hour, um, and that's what can cause a wildfire to move so quickly. The trade winds are a normal part of Hawaii, but in this case, Hurricane Dora was passing south of the islands, and that created a big difference in air pressure, which led to those high winds. I mean, certainly the fires with big fatalities in the Western US, like the Camp Fire in California in 2018, those also had really dangerous winds. But then the other factor is what's there to burn. And Maui does have landscapes that are very flammable. Right,
10: and I mean, many of us learning this week that wildfires are not uncommon in Hawaii. So where does the greatest risk come from then?
11: Yet these are naturally drier sides of the island, and the land has changed quite a bit in some places because it was converted into fields like for sugarcane and pineapples. Um, I talked to Clay Traurnicht, who is an ecosystem specialist at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, and he says, you know, as agriculture has shrunk, those former fields have been overrun by invasive grasses.
5: When I'm talking grasslands, I'm not talking about kind of like knee-high Prairie. This is like waste to overhead tropical grasses, um, which are going to obtain amazing amounts of, of biomass. And so when they burn, um, they burn really explosively.
11: That's a big risk, especially as climate change makes it hotter and drier. So if Hawaii is going to reduce that risk, dealing with those fuels is, is going to be key.
10: Lauren Sommer from NPR's Climate Desk reporting from Maui. Lauren, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Florida is the first state to
14: approve videos made by PragerU kids for use in public schools. The content is geared toward conservative values. It includes videos animated in a way that is appealing to kids. As Carrie Sheridan from Member Station WUSF
15: reports, teachers can now use it as they see fit. Prager U is not an accredited university. It presents itself as educational, but it's primarily an online media organization. Prager U Kids produces these catchy short videos. Here's an intro to one of them
16: Prager U Kids is dedicated to teaching what most schools aren't our American values, history, and blessings.
15: In another video, slavery is portrayed as just something normal for its time. It even shows a recreation of Frederick Douglass, who escaped slavery and became an abolitionist in the 1800s.
12: There was no real movement anywhere in the world to abolish slavery before the American founding. Slavery was part of life all over the world. It was America that began the conversation to end it.
15: But the video ignores that Denmark, Britain, and France had already outlawed the trading of slaves while slavery continued here. According to Vice News, two of the main funders of PragerU are fracking industry billionaires Dan and Ferris Wilkes. And PragerU Kids has a video questioning the origin of climate change. In this one, a narrator sets up a conversation between a girl and her parents. But when her anxiety gets high and she tells them that fossil fuels will soon lead to a climate
7: disaster, they challenge her with some thought-provoking questions. They encourage her to consider how the planet has been warming and cooling since prehistoric times, long before carbon emissions were a factor. Can she explain that?
15: The science of greenhouse gas emissions doesn't come up in this video. Jessica Wright, vice president of the Florida Freedom to Read Project, says the videos have elements that are accurate, but sometimes they mix in opinions and skip over important facts. I think that a lot of educators who have a
17: traditional education background or they've been in the profession for a long time, they're going to be able to recognize in those materials that Prager used representing what we would refer to as a logical fallacy, meaning... The material that you're reading or listening to might sound like it makes sense, but if you are educated on
15: that topic, you would know that they came to a conclusion that's not based on fact. Wright says Florida's endorsement of PragerU Kids means this content could easily make its way into classrooms because it's free, easily accessible, and teachers don't have to ask permission.
5: But in the state of Florida, we're proud to stand for education, not indoctrination in our schools.
15: That's Governor Ron DeSantis. His Department of Education gave the green light for Prager U Kids in July, the same month its founder, conservative radio host Dennis Prager, said this.
18: We bring doctrines to children. That's a very fair statement. I said, but what is the bad of our indoctrination?
15: A spokeswoman for the Florida Department of Education said in an email that they've reviewed Prager U Kids and determined the material aligns to Florida's revised civics and government standards. She described PragerU kids as quote, no different than many other resources. Some parents, like Michelle Posey, a conservative who's running for the state house, say PragerU videos are just a counterforce to what she calls a liberal agenda in
19: schools. I used them as a tool in homeschooling my children. I have a right as the parent to drive that education the way I see fit, it should line up with what I believe. NO
15: FLORIDA SCHOOL DISTRICT HAS YET ANNOUNCED PLANS TO USE PRAGER U KIDS' VIDEOS, BUT THEY CAN'T STOP TEACHERS FROM SHOWING THEM EITHER. I DO
2: NOT WANT MY KIDS EXPOSED TO THIS.
15: ABSOLUTELY NOT. LIZ BARKER IS A MOTHER OF FOUR IN SARASOTA. SHE SAYS SHE PLANS TO TALK TO HER KIDS' TEACHERS ABOUT HER CONCERNS.
2: I THINK IT'S GREAT WHEN CHILDREN SEE MULTIPLE PERSPECTIVES, BUT IF YOU'RE PUSHING ONE PERSPECTIVE AS BEING FACT, that is
15: problematic. Some public school advocates are urging parents to submit an opt-out form, letting teachers know they don't want their children to watch the videos. For NPR News, I'm Carrie Sheridan in Sarasota. Skywatchers should have a chance to see bright
10: streaks of light and even fireballs this weekend as the annual Perseid meteor shower reaches its peak activity. NPR's Nell greenfield Boyce has some tips for how to catch the celestial fireworks.
7: The Perseids happen every summer when the Earth plows through a cloud of debris associated with a comet. The bits of comet stuff are tiny. They can be like a grain of sand. But when they hit the atmosphere at high speeds? Friction
1: causes that stuff to heat up and it causes the air around it to glow.
7: Michelle Nichols is director of public observing with the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. She says this year the Perseids should put on a good show. Mainly because the moon isn't going to interfere. The moon will be just a little sliver, so skies should be nice and dark. Viewing should be best in the late night hours of Saturday and into the pre-dawn hours of Sunday, when the shower reaches its peak. Robert Lunsford is with the American Meteor Society. He says all you have to do is go outside, sit in a nice chair, get comfortable, then look about halfway up the sky and give your eyes at least 30 minutes to adapt to the darkness. Sometimes
20: you'll see fireballs of different colors, that leave a uh, trail in the sky for up to a minute or so, and uh, it's very cool.
7: The chance of seeing fireballs is also a big draw for Jackie Faraday. She's an astronomer at New York City's Hayden Planetarium.
1: One can come that will shake you to your core. It, like, scares you. She says the main
7: thing you need to bring to a meteor shower is patience. You cannot just
1: be out there for 10 minutes You have to commit to being there.
7: Because meteors don't come at a steady pace. Some hours will have hardly any, and then a whole slew will come.
1: This is not about a quick, you know, awesome glance up and you see it and you're done. You have to dedicate. And really 45 minutes to an hour is my recommended minimum.
7: She says two hours is way better.
1: Like get a glass of wine or a bottle. Sit out there for a while. Give the sky a chance to entertain you.
7: The Perseids will last until the end of August. The very best views will come in places away from city lights, assuming the skies are clear. If it's cloudy, just try another night. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. It's
14: All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And thanks for spending part of your afternoon with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, COVID cases are up as we head into the latter part of summer. Experts will explain how to navigate upticks in the virus, which don't mean quite what they used to. On Wall Street, the Dow picked up 0.3 percent today. The S&P slipped 0.1 percent. Nasdaq dropped half a percent. In local business news, Mass General Brigham is reporting an increase in revenue and operating income in the third quarter of its fiscal year. MGB reported income of $69 million. That's a big change from the same time last year when it reported a loss of $120 million because of high inflation and labor costs. Leaders of the health care system say those costs have stabilized. MGB collected almost $5 billion in revenue in the third quarter, a 15 percent jump from that quarter last year. It's the largest hospital system in the state. This is WBUR.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996 tax deductions and free towing. goodnewsgarage.org and the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture with Goldfest, a celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip hop tomorrow. boston.gov/goldfestival.
21: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org/cars.
0: Well, it looks like a beautiful start to the weekend. Temps will dip to the mid 60s tonight and it'll be mainly clear then sunshine tomorrow highs in the mid 80s sunday a chance of showers and thunderstorms but it should be partly sunny for at least some of the day with temps around 86 degrees monday temperatures in the mid 80s under mostly sunny skies and a chance of showers tuesday right now it's 81 degrees in boston with partly cloudy skies this is wbur
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering and 24/7 live support. EasyCater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com/npr and from the Doris Duke Foundation.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
14: Attending the Iowa State Fair has been a presidential rite of passage for decades. The first in the nation, Iowa caucuses will be crucial for any candidate working to siphon away Donald Trump's lead in Republican polls. But this year's fair comes as Trump faces a number of indictments. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters
13: reports. <laughs> Most people don't go to the Iowa State Fair to see politicians. It's the food, the livestock, the concerts at the grandstand. Jessica Manuel just moved here from Arizona and likes the horticulture exhibits.
6: Flowers, those are
16: way
17: beautiful, all those huge fruits, vegetables that we grow. We don't have that in Arizona, so it's
0: really cool to see that stuff.
13: She and her partner, Chris Laurie, are standing near the Iowa State Capitol in Des Moines, watching the parade that kicks things off. Laurie is from Iowa and just moved back. He says the politicking at the fair is pretty ridiculous. It's a rare opportunity because they like play like they're regular people. Grab a corn dog and you're one of us. The GOP candidates will have plenty of time to sample fried food as the caucuses stand to have an outsized role in 2024. Iowa's Republican Governor Kim Reynolds is welcoming all of them here. On the opening day, she flips pork burgers at a grill with North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. She's invited all of them to sit with her for public interviews she's dubbed Fairside Chats. Reynolds has appeared with all the candidates this year, and she's remaining neutral for now.
22: When I'm inviting them here and asking them to go to all 99 counties, get out in the state, talk to Iowans, uh, they're not going to do that if they feel like you know they they don't have a fair shot at
13: it. Former President Donald Trump is not doing that. He has not spent nearly as much time in the state as the others and has expressed frustration with Reynolds for not endorsing him. Yet when it comes to Trump's mounting indictments, including for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss, Reynolds repeats a similar Republican refrain that won't insult his loyal base.
22: I think we have a weaponized uh, Department of Justice and IRS and FBI, and I think we're seeing that. I think Americans feel that there is a two tier justice system.
13: The charges were recommended by a grand jury of Trump's peers in Florida and Washington. And for all the traditional aspects of the fair, there's never been one with a presidential front runner who's been indicted multiple times. Trump's challengers have mostly avoided calling him out directly in Iowa. He still has a lot of support among Republicans in the state. His former vice president, Mike Pence, didn't mention him while taking a question about his role on January 6th.
23: That's a fair question. Look, come on, people. That's why I
13: came. Pence told the crowd he obeyed what the Constitution requires, despite pressure from Trump and his attorneys. After his speech, he told reporters he hopes the former president shows up at the first Republican debate later this month in Milwaukee.
23: People ask me sometimes what what I think about maybe debating Donald Trump. I tell people I've debated Donald Trump a thousand times, just never with the cameras on.
13: Pence and many of the candidates are spending multiple days at the fair, hoping to get the attention of Iowans like Jill Crane. She stumbled upon the end of his speech and liked what she heard. She's not a fan of Trump and wants to find a candidate that can end the divisiveness in politics.
24: I just would love to see candidates that are working very hard to change the, the whole environment of politics right now. I grew up in a Republican household. Loved, I thought it was a great party but I can't stand it right now to be honest.
13: But the former president's grip on the party remained clear as Pence strolled the concourse following his speech. Several fairgoers decked out in Trump gear were shouting at him. A traitor. The top Republican candidates will be here tomorrow. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will appear with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds And with another potential indictment looming, Trump will also be here, looking to overshadow his rivals who are spending more of their time in Iowa. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines.
10: Colombia is the last team from the Americas still in the Women's World Cup. Tomorrow morning, they'll play England in Sydney's quarterfinals. This is the furthest Colombian soccer has ever advanced on the international stage. As Jorge Valencia reports from Bogota, the team is led in part by a teenager who may become the tournament's breakout star.
25: The Colombian striker Linda Caicedo scored one of the most magical goals of the tournament. It was against Germany last week. She caught a rebound from the left edge of the penalty box, zigzagged between two defenders, and curled the ball into the top right corner of the goal. We're not going to play a recording because somebody else has strict broadcasting rights, and they have really good lawyers. But the official Colombian narrator yelled one of those epic GOALS for 16 seconds. And fans here in Colombia were up early, before work, before school, watching in astonishment.
9: It's, it's a spect- a spectacular.
25: Maria Alejandra Useche-Garcia is a fan here in Bogotá. She and her friend Paula Ortiz-Sánchez play together in an academy called Future Soccer. They're both 14 years old, and Ortiz says that for them, this World Cup is historic.
6: It's like really representative for our country. It makes us, as women, feel like we can play soccer without something that they would say about us, like something bad.
25: Uciches says that growing up in a country like Colombia, where a national women's team didn't officially exist until 30-some years ago, where a professional women's league didn't exist until six years ago, Girls face a lot of stereotypes.
5: Like girls are not made for playing football or it's just for boys.
25: Oh really, does anybody ever say that to you?
5: Yeah, Yeah, when I was a little kid.
25: Really? Yes. In the school. Who
5: said that? In the school and uh, boys from other teams.
25: Those were barriers that Colombia's wonder kid, Linda Caicedo, who's barely 18, faced when she was growing up near the city of Cali. As a child, her parents initially could only place her in an all-boys academy. But by the time she was 10, she was standing out no matter where she played, says former coach John Albert Ortiz Arce. One, because of her innate talent and agility la But also, Ortiz says, because she had character. He says he could see her discipline when she started being asked for interviews. Here she is after a match in a South America tournament in Paraguay. She was 14. Her interviewer asked her if she was excited to make friends from other countries. No, Caicedo said. We didn't come here to make friends. We came here to focus on our objective. A year later, at age 15, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Former coach Ortiz says Cescaicedo thought she wouldn't play again.
9: She
25: survived through her faith and determination, he says, something that shows the kind of character she has. Natalia Prieto directs the women's soccer website Femina Futbol. Now, Prieto says, the Colombian Soccer Federation is bragging about Caicedo and the women's team. The players, though, she says, have earned their merits not because of them, but despite them. And they're inspiring younger players, like Paula Ortiz Sanchez. She says she wants to keep playing forever.
6: Professionally in, in like big leagues, such as like Spain League or English League.
25: Just like Linda Caicedo this year signed on to play with Real Madrid in Spain. For NPR News, I'm Jorge Valencia in Bogotá.
14: This is NPR News.
0: And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the director of the new movie Red, White, and Royal Blue on bringing the acclaimed gay rom-com novel to the screen. That's ahead in about 20 minutes. Clear skies are on tap for tonight with a low around 64 degrees. We should see mid-80s tomorrow with lots of sunshine. Sunday should be partly sunny but might bring some showers and thunderstorms. We'll have a high around 86 that day. Then Monday to start the week, mostly sunny in the mid-80s. It's 81 degrees right now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our
16: listeners, and by semester off. Integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Fall semester starts September 18th. SemesterOff.com
23: Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait Wait.
24: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. A federal judge today revoked bail for FTX founder Sam Bankman Freed over alleged witness tampering by the crypto mogul in his fraud case. His lawyers asked he remained free pending appeal, but Judge Lewis Kaplan denied that request and Bankman Fried was taken into custody. He will stay in jail until his trial, which is scheduled to start on October 2nd. He was arrested in December and has been out on a $250 million bail package that required him to stay at his parents' California house. Officials in Hawaii say at least 55 people died in a wildfire on Maui as search and rescue efforts continue. Hundreds of buildings in the historic town of Lahaina were destroyed. Residents were allowed to return today to check on their property, though many found their homes burned to the ground. Bill Dorman of Hawaii Public Radio reports thousands remain in shelters after being forced to evacuate.
12: Hawaii Governor Josh Green says the west side of the island of Maui needs to house thousands of people, and soon... Emergency federal aid will help, but there are challenges to overcome. A big one is communication. The west side of Maui has no power, no internet, and unreliable phone service for both landlines and cell phones. There's also no water, and State Senator Angus McKelvey says fuel is running low. In the town of Lahaina, safety is a concern, and officials say rescue efforts continue as they also look ahead to the grim work of recovery. For NPR News, I'm Bill Dorman in Honolulu.
24: Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel in the Hunter Biden investigation. Delaware's U.S. Attorney David Weiss, a Trump appointee who was retained by the Biden administration, asked to be named to the job after probing the financial and business dealings of President Biden's son since 2019. Wall Street ending the day in mixed territory. The Dow up 105 points. This is NPR News. United Nations says it completed a ship-to-ship transfer of oil, preventing what could have been a, quote, monumental environmental catastrophe. The U.S. helped fund the operation and welcomed the news, as NPR's Michelle Keliman reports.
19: An abandoned, rusting supertanker off the coast of Yemen has been a concern for years. Now the United Nations says it has managed to move all of the tanker's oil to a replacement vessel, avoiding a spill that would have damaged the entire Red Sea region and beyond. The United Nations still needs about $22 million to finish the job. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield calls this a model example of international cooperation. Had the world not acted, she says in a statement, coastlines across the Horn of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula would have been polluted. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
24: The United States has imposed sanctions against four Russians who are on the board of the Alpha Group, one of Russia's biggest conglomerates with interests in oil, natural gas, and banking. The group is also involved in the technology sector, and the U.S. Treasury Department says it helped Russia counteract other sanctions stemming from the war. It's all part of continued efforts to place restrictions on the Russian economy after its invasion of Ukraine. Crude oil prices higher by the close, gaining three-tenths of a percent to end at $83.12 a barrel. This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. In the fiscal year that concluded in June, Massachusetts collected just over $39 billion in tax revenue. That's nearly $2 billion less than the state took in during the prior fiscal year. The state revenue commissioner says the drop is largely due to a decrease in capital gains taxes collected. Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor Driscoll today visited small businesses in North Andover that were damaged by flooding this week. Some owners say it will be months before they can reopen. Massachusetts is getting $275,000 from the federal government to help protect beachgoers from unhealthy water. The Environmental Protection Agency says the funds will help with monitoring and with public notification programs at public beaches. Taking a look at the forecast tonight should be mostly clear. We'll have a low in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, around 85 degrees. Chance of rain and thunderstorms on Sunday. It's 81 degrees in Boston.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
14: It is a fact. COVID cases are up again. The CDC is describing it as an uptick after a long period of declining rates. There is also a new Omicron variant on the rise. So how do we make sense of what is going on in this fourth fourth summer of living with COVID. And Pierce Ping, Huang is here to explain. Hey, Ping. Hey, Mary Louise. Hi, I'm depressed to even be talking about this. How are we talking about this? It sounds like this is not a wave necessarily. What are you calling it?
6: Yeah. I, I mean, it's I, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. It's not a wave, um, but I'm calling it more of a summer swell. And it's showing up in the national data from wastewater surveillance, which where you can see that the virus levels have been going up um, in the past month in every region.
26: Mm-hmm.
6: Here's how Dr. Celine Gounder put it. She's an infectious disease specialist and a senior fellow at KFF.
7: Yeah, this is not really a surge. And it's not dismissing that COVID is a threat. It's that you have to know when to sound the alarms and when not to.
6: So by the CDC numbers, this week there's been a 12.5% increase in people getting hospitalized with COVID, but health experts do stress that that still means that hospitalizations are near an all-time low. So Gounder says that this is definitely something to watch, but it's not something to panic over. While the risks are more serious for some, there are tools that are available to help.
14: The risks are more serious for some who? Who should be more concerned now?
6: Yeah. Yeah. So there are some people that have a real increased risk of hospitalization and death, even if they've been vaccinated. So this includes the elderly, people who are immune compromised, uh, people who live in nursing homes, people who are pregnant, infants. And now as cases are going up, they might want to think about doing things that might mitigate their risks, like avoiding crowds, maybe wearing a mask when they're grocery shopping or traveling, using air filters in rooms, spending more time outside if they're going to hang out with people. And of course, you know, the people who live with them, visit them, spend time with them, they might also want to be taking precautions, too.
14: And this new variant we mentioned, what do we know about it?
6: So the new variant that people are talking about now is called EG5. It's a sub-variant of Omicron, so that means it's still really closely related to what's been circulating since early 2022, and it's become more dominant over the past few months. So right now, it's uh, estimated to be responsible in 17% of cases. Here's how Dr. Mandy Cohen, head of the CDC, talked about the variants this week. She spoke on the podcast In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt.
1: They're still susceptible to our vaccines. They're still susceptible to our medicines. They're still picked up by the tests. So all of our tools still work um, as the virus changes,
6: but we're going to have to keep watching it. Ping, speaking of the
14: vaccine, should we all go get a shot now to shore up protection?
6: Well, the general advice from experts right now is that if you can, it would make sense to hold off for another month or two. So that's because the booster that's available currently is actually an old formulation from last year. There's a new version of the COVID vaccine coming this fall in late September, early October, and that's the one that targets newer variants.
14: So just briefly, it sounds like we may want to hold off.
6: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we expect that there's going to be an actual surge in the colder months. So if you wait to get the updated booster this fall, you're going to be better protected heading into the holiday season.
10: And Pierre's Ping Huang, thank you. You're welcome. Latinos are officially the largest ethnic group in Texas, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. The federal agency reported recently that as of last summer, Latinos eclipsed non-Hispanic white Texans in terms of population. But experts say this population growth is a long way from translating into more political power. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports.
27: Susana Caranza is a local organizer. She recently attended an outdoor concert in East Austin to talk to people about voting and upcoming elections, specifically to remind folks that there will be some constitutional amendments on the ballot this November.
17: I forgot how many are going to be, but probably four or five. Four or five yeah. Okay, I'll be
27: looking for them. Well, thank y'all very much for the information. Gracias. Caranza says she tries to be at public gatherings like this as much as possible. She says Latino families often have less experience with U.S. elections, and they're more likely to be apprehensive when it comes to any paperwork or process related to the government. So they require a bit more face time. So you have to see that repeatedly
24: in friendly
11: environments for you to think is okay, and you got to see your peers doing that.
27: According to the U.S. Census Bureau, Latinos in Texas make up 40.2 percent of the population, recently narrowly outgrowing the state's non-Hispanic white population, which is now 39.8 percent. Michael Lee with the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law says this is a huge milestone for Latinos in Texas.
20: But when it comes to political power, Latinos still are very underrepresented in Texas.
27: Lee says Latinos in Texas underperform compared to their population size when it comes to both participation and representation in politics.
20: There also are things like discriminatory voter ID laws, which in a lot of ways really target Latinos, requiring people to bring IDs that Latinos just don't have in as high numbers as the Anglo population or the Black population.
27: Redistricting is another hurdle. He says lawmakers have drawn various political maps in the past decade or so that either concentrate or split up the voting power of Latinos. But the biggest barrier is just demographics, says Arturo Vargas with Naleo, a nonpartisan group that promotes the political participation of Latinos.
20: Well, Latinos are now The largest ethnic group in the state of Texas, they are, in fact, the majority of the young people and children in Texas. Now, over 50 percent of all Texans 18 years and younger are Latinos. So a much larger share of the Latino population is unable to vote simply because they're not old enough.
27: Vargas says it could take a lot of time for all these young Latinos in Texas to become a significant political force as well. But this kind of work, especially on a large scale, takes a lot of time and money. Michael Lee with the Brennan Center says political parties don't often invest in Latinos because one, they're still trying to understand Latino voters and two, they will often invest in voters they can better predict.
20: Because it's much easier if you've got a limited campaign budget to say, okay, I'm going to go target white suburban women who I know, you know will vote if I simply give them the right message or I will invest my time in turning out black voters because there's a lot more bang for the buck.
27: And Arturo Vargas with Naleo says the lack of political power among Latinos isn't just holding back Latinos.
20: It's also important to acknowledge that these numbers mean that the future of Texas depends on the economic and social success of Latinos in that state. All aspects of Texas society are going to depend on whether or not Latinos are able to succeed and fully develop their potential in the coming years.
27: Vargas says it's inevitable that Latinos will be a political force in Texas, but at this point, it's just a matter of time. Ashley Lopez, NPR News, Austin. Tomorrow,
14: we hear about one of the nation's more unusual competitions.
6: Oh, I love this contest so much. It gives people a chance to shine in something that they might not otherwise have a chance to shine in. It is
14: a dinosaur roaring contest, including entries from terrifying toddler sources. Roar! 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 Like that. <sighs> so cute! Come for the news. Stay for the toddler sorus roars tomorrow on weekend edition. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Walk through San Francisco, and it is hard to miss those driverless cars prowling the city. They're decked out with rooftop cameras and sensors, and now they are facing unexpected resistance from the city's police and fire departments. NPR's
28: Derek Kerr reports. Dozens of fire trucks raced to a massive blaze in a normally quiet neighborhood near Golden Gate Park back in February. As police cordoned off the surrounding area, a self-driving car with no human inside approached the scene.
21: No, go back. No, I'm gonna pop a flare so it doesn't move and run over the uh, the, the water line.
28: That's police body camera footage from the incident that was obtained by San Francisco news site Mission Local. It shows officers struggling with how to deal with this driverless car.
5: Got a bit of a pickle. I got an autonomous vehicle, the, the
20: Waymo. It's uh, inching sl- uh, slowly and closely to the uh, one of the main water lines that the
21: uh, SF Fire just charged.
28: The police were able to get the car in park and wait until Waymo came and collected it. But this incident wasn't a one-off. The San Francisco Fire Department has tracked 55 similar episodes over the last six months. And our folks cannot be paying attention to uh, an autonomous vehicle
29: when we've got ladders to throw.
28: That's San Francisco Fire Chief Janine Nicholson at a meeting about the issue on Monday. Again, I will reiterate it is not our job to babysit their vehicles. Nicholson says five of those incidents happened in just the last week. Some of these cars have run through yellow emergency tape. Others have blocked firehouse driveways. Cops have had to smash the windows just to disable the cars. Sometimes the vehicles refuse to move. So fire trucks have to back up and take another road. Nicholson says in an emergency, time is critical every second can make the difference. A fire can
29: double in size in one minute. If we are blocked by an autonomous vehicle, that could lead to more harm to the people in that building, to the
28: housing overall, and to my first responders. San Francisco is a testing ground for self-driving cars. Most are run by the company's Cruz, which is part of GM, and Waymo, which is owned by Google Parent Alphabet. Nearly 500 roll through the city's hilly streets every day. Some cars have safety drivers, others are completely empty. Many offer rides like a taxi. Both Cruise and Waymo acknowledge the incidents with emergency vehicles, but haven't answered directly why their technology is responding this way. Cruise AVs have now driven over 3 million miles safely, the vast majority of which go unnoticed. That's Cruise's Prashanthi Rao Raman speaking at the meeting on Monday. She said driverless cars are safer than human-driven ones when it comes to passenger safety. California's transportation regulator voted this week to let Cruz and Waymo expand their car programs. Now they can pick up passengers like a taxi at all times of the day. Lauren Renaud of San Francisco is opposed to this
10: decision. It doesn't feel like the technology is ready to be on public streets, and that makes me nervous.
28: Hundreds of people have written public comments to the regulator. The vast majority say they don't want self-driving cars on the streets. Protesters also gathered in San Francisco on Monday to speak out against more autonomous vehicles, which they call robo-taxis.
23: Stop the robo-taxis. Stop the robo-taxis.
28: Many of them echoed the words of Fire Chief Nicholson, who's been repeatedly saying that the self-driving cars aren't ready for prime time. Dara Kerr, NPR News.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's 81 degrees in Boston at 448. Coming up, Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss is named a special counsel to investigate the president's son, Hunter Biden. We'll have the latest. Plus, we'll look at what Iran will get in exchange for moving four Americans from prison to house arrest. Those stories just after the top of the hour. Take WBUR along wherever you're heading this summer. Download or update the WBUR app and just tap to listen live and catch up on what's happening. Well, we'll have mostly clear skies tonight, temps in the mid-60s. Tomorrow looks like a great day for a dip in the ocean. It'll be around 85 degrees and mostly sunny. Mid-80s again for Sunday with a chance of showers and thunderstorms, otherwise partly sunny on Sunday. Sunshine to start the work week Monday with temps around 84. Then Tuesday looks partly sunny with a chance of showers. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR.
23: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at MyPrompt.com slash NPR. And Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org.
4: Elaine McMillian Sheldon recalls a child who came up to her while she made her new film about coal in Appalachia.
17: She said, if we didn't have coal, all we'd have would be these mountains. And yeah, people would think we were beautiful, but we
4: wouldn't be important. Are there new dreams for a region so tied to King Coal? Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here
5: tomorrow. This
14: is
10: All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The new romantic comedy Red, White, and Royal Blue is a classic enemies-to-lovers story about two men leading very public lives who initially can't stand each other. There's England's Prince Henry and Alex Claremont Diaz, the son of the U.S. president.
6: Did your parents send you to snobbery school or does looking down on people just come naturally to you?
5: Well, in your case, I would say it's rather inevitable. We are the same height. If you say so, Alex,
21: great to see you. Eventually,
10: they get over their differences and become lovers, but things aren't always easy. The movie also unfurls two coming out stories. This film is based on a beloved novel by author Casey McQuiston. That meant director Matthew Lopez was facing high expectations.
9: Every reader of a novel is a film director, the high-wire act that I was engaged in is, is how do I take a very popular bit of literature and make a movie of it? And the answer I really came to was I have to make the movie that is personal to me. I have to make the movie that I am capable of making.
10: Lopez said after reading the novel, he was drawn to Alex's character. That's because he's also a queer, biracial, Latina man from the South. But he told me there was also something familiar about Henry. And just a heads up, Matthew Lopez and I talked a bit about sex in this conversation.
9: Henry is a person who's trapped in circumstances beyond his ability to influence. He cannot be who he is and I think that's something that a lot of queer people can identify with. So there's this beautiful metaphor in the story of a prince wanting to be a normal person. You know, it's, it's Pinocchio wanting to be a real boy. And I think that we all in our own ways can identify with that. And I think that there's something really beautiful that Casey's given readers that I hope is in the movie of we're all, we're all princes of our own story and we all want the world to know us for who we are.
10: You've talked a good deal about how much you immediately were drawn to and related to Alex's character, but do you see shades of yourself or were there parts of your own story that inspired the way that you think about Henry?
9: I really identified with him. I I knew what it was like to pretend I was something I'm not. I knew what it was like to believe that if I wasn't this thing in the world, that I sup- believe that I'm supposed to be, I would be letting down my family, that I would be out of step with the nation. So even though Alex demographically and sort of personally really, really checks a lot of boxes for me in my experience, the pain of being a young queer kid in the 1980s and 90s is really reflected very strongly for me in Henry's story.
10: I can't have this conversation with you without talking about the intimacy of this film and the way that it depicts intimate moments in sex. I mean, there's one scene that I'm thinking about in particular. It's when Henry and Alex are in Paris.
6: I think we should make love tonight.
12: Oh. I'm I mean,
6: yeah. I'm I'm down. <sighs> <laughs> I mean, who does make love anymore? We're going to like listen to Lana Del Rey when we do all it? All right, all right.
10: It feels not at all contrived. And I don't know if in any other romantic comedy that I've watched that I've seen a sex scene between two men portrayed in that way. And I'd just love to talk with you a bit about how you approached as a director depicting their physical relationship
9: it was the scene that I told the studio and the producers that if they hired me, they were going to get. And that if they didn't want that scene to be in the movie, they should find another filmmaker. And it was a a big bluff, but it (laughs) worked. And the challenge was, how do you seem to honor two supposedly diametrically opposed impulses, which is one to really tell a story of of a life that is changing in a moment. And also to do something that is graphic enough to not leave any doubt in the audience's mind as to what is happening on a moment-to-moment basis. And so as we devised the scene, I I decided to stay on their faces and to stay on their shoulders and shoot no further um, wider than their mid-back and allowing the audience to understand it on their faces.
10: Why was it so important to you to throw down that gauntlet and say, if I'm going to make this film, this scene has to be in it. Why is it so important for us as viewers to see these two men who love each other, loving each other?
9: I've seen a lot of indie films that are very explicit and very accurate. But when I watch a studio-financed mainstream movie with two men having sex in it those scenes are almost always made with a straight audience in mind and what's in their mind is how do we not scare off the straight audience Mm -hmm. and that has often come at the cost of me as the audience member not feeling as if the way I make love the way I have sex is valued and it wasn't until I started showing it to people and I really was very keen to, to start to show it to, to people who I knew would respond to that scene and there was almost instant identification with that scene. Everybody mentioned that scene. Everybody talked about it. The thing that I loved hearing uh, from gay men on that scene is I love that you show the leg up and the knee <sighs> and the hand on the knee, the way that Henry holds his leg up is so accurate. and. I think that there's just something, like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, the simple act of seeing um, the physical, the placement of the hand and the leg in relation to his partner's body is so par for the course for for gay men. And you never see that kind of thing in a studio-financed film.
10: One of the things that I really loved when I watched this movie is the fact that even though there are parts of it that were hard and complicated. It was incredibly hopeful and optimistic at a time where, for some of us, it can be challenging to find that joy. What do you hope that people take away from this movie when they see it?
9: I hope people remember what it feels like to believe in their ability to change the world through the simple act of being themselves. If people watch this movie and just say, that was so much fun, that's enough for me. But if people also watch this movie and say, that movie made me remember that I actually have some agency in the world, um, well, that's, that's a good thing too.
10: Matthew, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
9: Thank you for having me.
10: Matthew Lopez directed the movie Red, White, and Royal Blue, which is out now on Prime Video.
14: You're listening to All
17: Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with AdoptAClassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools in local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: We're glad you're with us here at WBUR this afternoon. Firefighters continue to put out flare-ups and active fires in Lahaina and surrounding areas on Maui. We're following the fires and efforts to help today on 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us for updates. Well, it should be in the mid-60s and mostly clear tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny will have a high around 85. chance of showers and thunderstorms Sunday, but otherwise it'll be partly sunny with temps in the mid-80s should have a sunny start to the week on Monday with a high around 84 degrees. It's 81 degrees in Boston at five o'clock.
1: I'm senior business reporter Yasmina Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss has been named a special counsel investigating criminal allegations against the president's son, Hunter Biden. Weiss made the request this week.
8: To oversee the investigation and decide where, when, and whether to file charges.
0: It's Friday, August 11th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. We'll look at what Iran will get in exchange for releasing four Americans from prison to house arrest. Plus, Australians are going nuts for their women's soccer team, smashing viewing records as they follow the World Cup journey of the team dubbed the Matildas.
7: We are breaking records all over over the place. So the audience was always there. It's just never been catered to, if you like.
0: Also ahead, waging war against wildfire season in California with the help of goats. It's 501 First This News.
12: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Getting people off the island of Maui has become a priority after wildfires there have claimed at least 55 lives and left hundreds homeless and visitors stranded. Peter Ingram is the CEO of Hawaiian Airlines, the largest commercial operator to and from the islands, and says so they've lowered the fare of every seat to just $19 for people who need to leave.
4: Trying to do what we can in this crisis, which is help on the transportation between the islands, Uh, shuttle people out of of Maui into Honolulu or to the U.S. mainland.
12: Nearly 15,000 visitors left Maui by air yesterday with additional flights added to accommodate those who still need to leave in order to free up hotel space to house those who have lost their homes. Officials have strongly discouraged travel to Maui while the search for more victims of the raging wildfires continues. Disgraced crypto mogul Sam Bankman Freed has been ordered to jail ahead of his trial. The founder of the now bankrupt cryptocurrency company FTX has been under house arrest on a $250 million bond. But as NPR's David Gurra reports, prosecutors say there was a pattern of Bankman-Fried flouting the rules of that bail agreement, and the judge agreed. Prosecutors asked Judge Lewis Kaplan to detain Sam Bankman-Fried, who's been living at his parents' house
13: in California since the U.S. government charged him with orchestrating one of the largest financial frauds in history. The judge has modified his bail terms before. Well, Since then, bankman Freed has shared private writings by his ex-girlfriend, who's the former head of a crypto hedge fund he founded, and who's also a witness for the prosecution with a reporter for The New York Times. Prosecutors alleged this amounted to witness tampering, and he could taint the jury pool. Beckman-Fried's attorneys argued against jailing their client, saying it would impinge on his First Amendment rights.
12: David Gura, NPR News, New York. The United Nations is welcoming reports five of its security staff have been released in Yemen. NPR's Michelle Kellerman says the group was kidnapped 18 months ago.
19: The U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the kidnapping was an inhumane and unjustifiable crime. The U.N.'s envoy in Yemen, David Gressley, wouldn't say how the five were rescued, but says the four Yemeni and one Bangladeshi. Staffers are glad to be out.
23: They're in good health, uh, good spirits, uh, despite everything that they went through. Uh, but they went through a very difficult, uh, a very difficult period of 18 months of isolation.
19: He says they were held by al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which he says is an increasing threat in Yemen. He adds the U.N. does not pay ransom. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
12: Mixed reaction to new wholesale inflation numbers on Wall Street today. The Dow rose 105 points to 35,281. However, the Nasdaq closed down 93 points. The S&P 500 dropped You're listening to NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Four former foster children have reached a $7 million settlement with the state over allegations of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. They lived with an Oxford couple who are facing criminal charges for allegedly abusing their foster kids over nearly two decades. The plaintiffs accused the Department of Children and Families and its employees of failing to protect them despite repeated allegations against the couple. Local research shows hospitalized COVID patients 65 or older were twice as likely to die six months after being discharged than those hospitalized with the flu. Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center Dr. Dhruv Kazee is the study's co-author. He says health care inequities were a factor.
20: Black individuals, not only did they have higher uh, mortality in hospital, but even those discharged alive were more likely to be re-hospitalized in the next 180 days compared with white individuals.
0: Kazee says low-income COVID patients were also at much higher risk of dying after getting out of the hospital or being re-hospitalized. Massachusetts sales tax holiday is tomorrow and Sunday. Most retail items under $2,500 will be tax-free. Items such as cars and boats don't qualify, and you still have to pay excise taxes on tobacco, alcohol, and marijuana products. A new study finds playing football may significantly increase a person's risk for Parkinson's disease later in life. Michael Alosco of the Boston University School of Medicine is a study author. His team found people who've played football have a 61 percent increased chance of developing Parkinson's or Parkinson's-like symptoms.
5: We do think that the repetitive head impacts could, through kind of unknown
21: mechanisms, somehow influence risk for Parkinson's. For, uh, brain diseases like Parkinson's disease in this case.
0: The study also found the more years someone played football, the more their odds of developing Parkinson's went up. In sports, Chris Sale returns to pitch for the Red Sox tonight as they take on the Tigers at Fenway. Sale has spent 10 weeks on the injured list after fracturing a shoulder blade. Looks like a beautiful start to the weekend. Temps will dip to the mid-60s tonight. It'll be mainly clear. Then sunshine tomorrow. Highs in the mid-80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate
7: is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at
10: lodestarfoundation.org.
14: On a Friday. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
10: And I'm Juana Summers. The attorney general has appointed a special counsel to investigate the president's son, Hunter Biden. The current U.S. attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, has already been leading the investigation for years now. Merrick Garland made the announcement at Justice Department headquarters this afternoon.
8: The appointment of Mr. Weiss reinforces for the American people the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters.
10: NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson was at the DOJ today and joins us in studio. Hey, Carrie. Hi, Juana. So, Carrie, as we mentioned, David Weiss had already been in charge of the Hunter Biden investigation. So materially, what changes? The main
29: change seems to be that now he's a special counsel. David Weiss is going to write a report about his decisions to prosecute people and to decline to prosecute people when he's done with the investigation. And the attorney general says eventually he's going to try to make a lot of that report public, consistent with DOJ regulations. Weiss, of course, has been investigating Hunter Biden since 2019. As special counsel, he's going to operate outside of day-to-day supervision from the DOJ leaders, but they'll have an option to reject anything he wants to do if it's inappropriate or out of bounds, and they'll have to tell Congress about any instance when they override what Weiss wants to do.
10: Remembering that just a month or so ago, the Justice Department announced a plea deal with Hunter Biden that would have resolved tax charges, a gun charge against him. What's the status of that? It seems dead, Juana. Prosecutors wrote the judge this afternoon
29: that both sides are at an impasse. They no longer agree on a plea deal or a diversion deal. That would have wiped out a gun charge uh, against Hunter Biden if he stayed out of trouble for a couple of years. The plea deal, remember, broke down in court after a judge in Delaware started asking questions about whether it would give Hunter Biden some kind of broad immunity from other allegations related to foreign lobbying or his business dealings. At that time, the U.S. Attorney David Weiss said his probe was ongoing, but he hasn't told us what exactly he continues to investigate or who he continues to investigate. But his appointment order of special counsel references Hunter Biden, among others. That could mean other people who had dealings with Hunter Biden are under scrutiny, including other Biden family members. We just don't know right now. So, Carrie, any reaction to today's news so far? What have you heard? The White House has been declining comment. They didn't find out about this move from the Justice Department until it was publicly announced. Chris Clark, Hunter Biden's lawyer, said this doesn't change our understanding of the special counsel's authority. And he said whether in Delaware or D.C., we expect a fair resolution, not infected by politics, and they'll do what's necessary to achieve that. And then a former spokesman for the former president, Donald Trump, said without any evidence that the Justice Department has been protected both Joe and Hunter Biden, even though the Justice Department is actually investigating both men Mm -hmm. right now.
10: Carrie, there was also a separate hearing in court today involving former President Trump and the case against him for trying to overturn the 2020 election. What happened there?
29: Yeah, a bit of news there. Judge Tanya Chutkin issued a protective order in the case to cover sensitive information. The Justice Department's going to share with Donald Trump and his lawyers. That includes witness statements and other things. She gave a little bit to Trump and the special counsel today, but she ended by saying they should take care in their public statements about the case, and she would safeguard the integrity of this trial
14: protect witnesses from being intimidated. That is NPR justice correspondent Carrie Johnson. Thanks, Carrie. My pleasure. To a deal now that the Biden administration is billing as the beginning of the end of a nightmare. We learned yesterday that four Americans are out of Iran's notorious Evin prison, along with another American they are now being held under house arrest. The hope is that Tehran and Washington will soon sort final details and clear the way for them to come home. To the U.S. Meanwhile, there are questions about something Iran will apparently get in return access to $6 billion. Let's bring in Deputy National Security Advisor John Feiner. He's on the line from the White House. John Feiner, welcome. Thanks for having me. What's the timeline? How soon could these Americans actually set foot on U.S. soil?
18: Well, Mary Louise, we're not going to get into all of the details of that because they are still inside Iran and because this process is still unfolding. We are reluctant to discuss details that we worry could compromise the consummation of this deal. But we are encouraged by what what happened yesterday. And we are going to do everything possible to make sure that this deal is completed and the Americans uh, return as soon as possible.
14: Understood. Are you looking at maybe days, maybe weeks? What's the ballpark?
18: I'd say more than days, but it is going to be soon.
14: And how are they doing? Siamak Namazi, the longest held U.S. citizen in Iran, has been there since he was detained in 2015. What's their condition?
18: You know, Mary Louise, these people have been through quite a lot. Uh, as you said, Siamak uh, Namazi has been detained and then imprisoned by the Iranians going back eight years. There are other Americans who have been held since before this administration. The Biden administration took office and then some uh, who were more recently picked up uh, all of them have been held in very hard conditions and not only is this an ordeal uh, for these five Americans but their families have been through uh, quite a lot as well as they waited for news and hoped uh, for their eventual return which of is course. what we're trying to bring about Yeah
14: okay so i hear you saying you don't want to get into details until everything is done and dusted and they're home safe however it has become clear that this will apparently involve the transfer of some 6 billion dollars that does belong to iran but which the us had blocked iran from accessing the idea now is the money will be moved to an account in Qatar, and it will only be available for use to buy food, to buy medicine, to buy stuff that is not under U.S. sanctions. My question, how can you be sure? What's the plan to monitor this money?
18: So you've characterized this uh, accurately. This is uh, would be $6 billion that uh, can only be used for humanitarian purposes. But how do you guarantee you
14: that's what it will be used for?
18: And the reason we can be confident of that uh, is that the U.S. Treasury Department has oversight over all of the funds uh, in this account and will be able to monitor any transactions uh, that they are used for to make sure that they're used for the proper purposes. And by the way, uh, it's important to note in light of some of the criticism that's been made uh, that these are accounts and this is a process that was actually set up under the previous administration and that that were used uh, during that administration uh, for Iranian purchases. Now we have no record of how those funds were used by our predecessors, but we are going to be very carefully monitoring and using very careful oversight again through the Treasury Department to make sure it's used the way it's intended.
14: You bring up the criticism two critics who argue that this will incentivize hostage taking, you say what?
18: I want to be very clear that the United States has actively and assertively discouraged Americans from traveling to countries like Iran, where we have real concerns that Americans could be subjected to arbitrary detention or imprisonment uh, or abduction. And what's important now is that some of these people, after many years, up to eight years in one case, uh, now have a very good chance of being reunited with their families, and we're working towards that.
14: Yeah. Let me just push you on this critique, though, because I want to I want to let you address it directly. This is, uh, among many others, Senator Jim, of Idaho. He's the top Republican on the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, who says he welcomes home wrongfully detained Americans, but, and I quote, unfreezing $6 billion in Iranian assets dangerously further incentivizes hostage-taking and provides a windfall for regime aggression.
18: Look, I think that there are some people who want to have it both ways, who want Americans to be welcomed uh, back and reunited with their families uh, and don't want any benefit to accrue to people who perpetrate these uh, atrocious acts of taking uh, hostages and wrongfully detaining people. And we agree that they are atrocious acts. But President Biden has been clear and unapologetic that he sees it. In the national interest and in the interest of this administration, not to mention in the clear interest of the individuals and the families involved, uh, that when people find themselves in these situations, even though we have discouraged them from putting themselves in harm's way and at risk, we will do what we can to try to bring them home.
14: Before I let you go, I want to pivot to what is perhaps the biggest point of tension with Iran, their nuclear program, their nuclear ambitions. Is your hope that progress on this prisoner issue may crack open the door to progress on that front?
18: Look, we've been quite clear that we believe uh, diplomatic constraints uh, uh, on Iran's nuclear program is the best way to ensure that it does not continue to move forward, uh, and that we believe it was a big mistake by our predecessors uh, to relieve uh, Iran of those constraints by pulling out of the nuclear deal. But I want to be very clear. We are doing uh, the current process to try to release uh, the five Americans who are still inside Iran on the merits uh, and on its own, not as some uh, precursor to some other uh, potential arrangement.
14: We've been speaking with John Finer, Deputy National Security Advisor for the White House from where he just joined us. John
10: Finer, thank you for your time. Thank you. The voice actor Johnny Hardwick has died. He's best known for his role as Dale Gribble on the animated series, King of the Hill. The Emmy-winning show was a slice-of-life
14: satire about a Texas family, and Dale Gribble, a chain-smoking conspiracy theorist, was best friends with the show's protagonist, Hank Hill.
19: I know what's wrong
8: with it. It's a Ford. You know what they say Ford stands for, don't you? It stands for Fix It Again, Tony.
4: (laughs) You're thinking of a Fiat, Dale.
10: Dale wore mirrored aviator glasses and an orange trucker hat, and because of his government paranoia, he sometimes assumed an alias.
8: Is that a real computer? Yes. Oh, in that case, my name is Rusty...
22: Shackleford.
14: (laughs) King of the Hill ran for 13 seasons from 1997 to 2010. Hardwick could be heard in nearly every episode, and he was slated to join a reboot of the show, Greenlit by Hulu, earlier this year.
10: In a 2003 documentary called The Making of King of the Hill, the show's co-creator, Mike Judge, reflected on bringing Hardwick on board.
20: To make animation really work, it's just important to make the look of the character and the voice match, and The first time I I, I thought it really came together on King of the Hill was actually Dale, Johnny Hardwick doing
8: Dale.
10: Here's Hardwick in the same film.
8: They had seen some tapes of me, I used to do stand-up, and Mike said he might be interested in me doing a voice. And I kind of locked into this Dale guy, that was sort of the only thing I wanted to audition for after, because in the pilot script he's just talking about the government.
25: Hey, did you guys know that there's a star for each state? Brilliant! You're a grand old flag, you're a something something flag, and forever in peace may you wave.
14: That is the voice of Johnny Hardwick, who died this week at 64.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the state of affairs in Ecuador, where the leading presidential candidate was assassinated in the days leading up to the election. On Wall Street, the Dow picked up 0.3 percent today. The S&P slipped 0.1 percent. NASDAQ dropped half a percent. In other business news, the estate of Henrietta Lacks has filed suit against a biopharmaceutical company with operations in Massachusetts. The suit accuses ultragenics of unjustly profiting off of Lax's cells for generations. Lacks was a black woman who had cells taken from her for research without her knowledge when she was being treated for cervical cancer at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore in the 1950s. The tumor cells were used to make cell lines that have contributed to countless medical advances and treatments. UltraGenics is based in California, but its cell and gene therapy operations are in Massachusetts. The suit comes just over a week after the Lax State settled a similar one with Waltham-based Thermo Fisher Scientific. You're listening to WBUR.
23: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton. Now enrolling for the upcoming year. A nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com and Circle Furniture, working with New England artisans dedicated to using sustainable materials to craft furniture that lasts. Locations at circlefurniture.com.
29: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars.
0: It should be mostly clear tonight we'll have a low in the mid-60s. Tomorrow looks like the pick of the weekend, mostly sunny around 85 degrees. We'll have a chance of rain and thunderstorms Sunday, otherwise partly sunny in the mid-80s. Right now it's 82 degrees in Boston.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from BritBox, with the new season of Silent Witness, every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This
10: is all things considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, and I'm Juana Summers. In early 2010, Nicki Minaj jumped on a plane to Hawaii for a recording session with some of the biggest hip-hop stars in the world.
30: So you have Kanye West, a Jay Z, a Rick Ross, and you know she's kind of coming in and blowing all of them away.
10: Clover Hope is the author of *Motherload: 100-plus women who made hip-hop. At the time, Kanye was holed up in a Honolulu studio making his album, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, with a long list of superstar guests. Nicki Minaj was an anomaly. Not only was she just one of two women, Rihanna was the other, but she hadn't even released a debut album. And yet...
30: At some points, it's it's almost unbelievable.
10: That's Rick Ross reflecting later on watching her write and record her verse for Kanye's song, Monster.
30: Just to be in the studio and me to actually watch and just to see everybody's reaction, I was just happy I was there to witness
26: that moment
30: in hip hop.
10: She brought a ferocious energy to the track.
30: You hear her ability to play with her voice. She's funny and she's loud and she, you know, has this dynamic quality to her
10: for years Nicki minaj had worked her way through a music industry freshly disrupted by the internet she released tracks on myspace she called her fans on the phone and streamed it on live video she made mixtapes that were devoured by rap blogs and she became the queen of featured guest verses on other artists songs which she nods to in monster in 2010, it all seemed to converge.
30: It's almost like her thesis, some sort of like coronation for her. This force who comes in and just lays them out <laughs> and anyone who's listening also
10: then a few months later that debut album finally came it was called pink friday
26: in this very moment i'm king in this very moment i slay good life with the sling this very moment i bring put it on everything that i will retire with the ring
10: will... nikki minaj had arrived and so had a new chapter in hip-hop The next decade would see women rising to the forefront. All week, we have been celebrating key moments from the first 50 years of hip-hop. Today, Nicki Minaj and the internet age.
26: The dexterity of Nicki Minaj has been studied and clearly replicated so many times in the trajectory of other artists' careers.
10: Sydney Madden is one of the hosts of NPR's podcast Louder Than a Riot. That dexterity went beyond her lyricism and chameleon-like voice. Starting on Myspace, Nicki Minaj figured out early on how to wield the internet to build an army of fans, an army she called the barbs. Before it was super cool to be like really locked in with your fans. She was extremely locked in. Masani Musa is host of the Culture Unfiltered podcast.
30: Like giving away money to her fans, paying for her fans' uh, college educations, like she really has shown the Barbs a lot of love, and in return, they show her an insane amount of love too.
10: When I sat down with Sydney and Masani, I asked first about the ways this kind of digital community building disrupted the music industry
30: the fans liberate artists there is no middleman it's just them and the fans they can do what it is that they want to do and they can know that even if they don't have the label support they have their fan support and at the end of the day that fan support can like take them to the moon
26: yeah absolutely changing hands from the quote unquote gatekeepers in the music industry and putting more emphasis and more autonomy in the hands of the artists themselves and the fans who feel seen and heard by them it really is the optimistic future of where the internet and music spaces can go. This one is for the boys with the booming system. AC with the coolest system. When you come up in the club, he' be blazing up. Got stacks on deck like he's up.
10: Okay, so I want to unpack some of the gender dynamics that are at play here. How were female rappers generally treated by the culture at this time?
30: I think most female rappers weren't really seen as a threat in terms of chart success and album sales. And when Nicki Minaj debuted and, you know, all of those numbers started pouring in, that's when the conversations about whether Nicki Minaj was a rapper or a pop star started to happen. And those conversations kind of threatened her title as a rapper. People wanted to place her as a pop star because of her commercial success.
26: Yeah, the first word that comes to my mind for so many huge artists who are women in the space still was an accessory an extra, a plus one. I think about people who live in the lineage of Nikki before her, people like Foxy Brown, people like Lil' Kim. There was always a level of connection to a man that was deemed necessary, and even Nikki really also had to follow that line and that path. She was on Young Money, which was Lil Wayne's huge juggernaut of a crew at the time in the early 2000s. But no matter the influence, she stood on her own and she started, she became so big that she started to eclipse any other male
10: around her. Can y'all give us like a couple of examples of female rappers who followed in this mold after Nicki Minaj paved the path and showed them it could be done this way? Absolutely, I think of Megan Thee Stallion,
26: I think of Cardi B and the idea that they don't allow themselves to become a caricature. They're able to sell themselves in a pop lane and they don't allow the figure that they originally popped off in the hip hop lane to define them.
30: I think what's interesting is we have Doja Cat doing it in reverse nowadays. She had a really big pop career over the last handful of years and she made a very public kind of harsh announcement that, you know, she wants to go back to rap and back to making quote unquote uh real music. And so somebody like Nicki Minaj who has been able to do both, you know, throughout her entire career has kind of given other women in hip hop and in pop the space to say, hey, I actually want to do this now.
10: We're 13 years at this point after Pink Friday. Where does the hip hop community stand when it comes to embracing female rappers? This is such an interesting question
26: because yes, there are absolutely so many other women flourishing in the aftermath of what the tidal wave of Nicki Minaj did for the industry. Like Cardi, like Megan. Most recently, Ice Spice, who she's now dubbed the princess of rap. I don't think female rappers are waiting
30: for the hip hop
26: community, i.e. men, to embrace them or put them on
30: any longer. I definitely feel like with hip hop turning 50 this year, I think there is still a long way to go, but you know, if it wasn't for Nicki, I don't think we would be here. So even though there is a long way to go with women fully being recognized for their contributions in hip hop, I think over the past two years, we've seen people for the first time like admit that women in hip-hop are actually doing their
10: things.
11: Let's go to the beach, Each, let's go get a wave. They say what they gonna
10: say. That was journalist Masani Musa and NPR's Sydney Madden. That wraps up our week-long celebration of 50 Years of Hip-Hop. This series was produced by Kat Lonsdorf and Noah Caldwell and edited by Patrick Jaron Watananan. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up in the next half hour, goats waging a battle to ward off wildfires in California. Electro pop singer FC headlines our last sound-on musical event of the summer at WBUR City Space on Thursday, August 24th. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It should be in the mid-60s and mostly clear tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high of 85. We'll have a chance of showers and thunderstorms Sunday, otherwise partly sunny temps in the mid-80s. It looks like a sunny start to the week on Monday with a high around 84 degrees. Right now, it's 82 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
23: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh Food Generation Restaurant and Catering. From scratch meals that combine New England ingredients with Caribbean and Southern flavors. Freshfoodgeneration.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, actor Dax Shepard talks about a very disappointing date.
12: For the amount that I paid for this thing, I was expecting a little more than cuddling. Is it, is it,
23: yeah. I'm Peter Sagel. I think you will be satisfied with what we have lined up for you on this week's news quiz, also with Donnie Osmond and the barefoot contessa. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
24: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The White House says there will be restrictions on what Iran could do with any funds unfrozen under an ongoing agreement that led to five Americans being released from prison to house arrest in Tehran. White House spokesperson John Kirby.
14: The the funds could only be accessed uh, for food, medicine, medical equipment that would not have a dual military use, uh, and there would be a, a rigorous process of due diligence and standards applied.
24: He says negotiations continue. Iran has an estimated $6 billion in assets held in South Korea. The Illinois Supreme Court has upheld a law that bans the future sale and possession of semi-automatic firearms and large capacity magazines. Mawa Iqbal from Member Station WBEZ has more.
17: Republican State Representative Dan Calkins had sued state officials, arguing the law violated the Illinois Constitution. He expressed disappointment with the court's ruling.
23: Uh, The Illinois General Assembly and the governor can decide to abridge our Second Amendment rights. What's to keep them from abridging our First Amendment rights? What's to keep them from abridging our Fifth Amendment rights? Where does it stop?
17: Gun reform advocates and Democratic officials are applauding the decision. Governor J.B. Pritzker, in a statement, said the law will, quote, keep mass killing machines off of our streets. The law, however, remains under review by the federal courts, where plaintiffs claim it violates the Second Amendment. For NPR News, I'm Mawa Iqbal in Springfield.
24: Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow gained 105 points to end at 35,281. The Nasdaq was down 93 points. The S&P 500 down four. You're listening to NPR News. Prosecutors in Ecuador have charged six Colombian nationals for the assassination of a presidential candidate in Ecuador. Meanwhile, as NPR's Ada Peralta reports, a memorial for the slain politician is scheduled in the capital.
21: According to prosecutors, the six Colombians were arrested in a property in Quito, the capital of Ecuador. Prosecutors say some of the bullet casings found at the scene of the assassination match one of the weapons found at the property. Fernando Villavicencio, who had campaigned against organized crime in Ecuador, was gunned down after a political rally on Wednesday. Prosecutors say an autopsy revealed Villavicencio was killed by long-distance gunfire. Investigators, they say, found 64 bullet casings and an unexploded grenade at the scene. Meanwhile, the president of Ecuador declared a state of emergency and deployed the military, vowing that the August 20th presidential elections will continue as planned. Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City.
24: Wholesale prices rose higher than expected last month. The Labor Department says the producer price index, which tracks changes in prices that businesses pay to suppliers, It's up eight-tenths of a percent in July from a year ago and are up three-tenths from June. That's the biggest monthly gain for the PPI since January. And Wall Street did end the day in mixed territory. The Dow up 105
0: points, Nasdaq down 93. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The Healy administration says the state could be facing a budget deficit. That after state leaders reported today tax revenue in the last fiscal year fell nearly half a billion dollars short of original projections. The state's revenue commissioner blames the slowdown largely on lower collections from the capital gains tax. Lobster fishermen in Cape Cod Bay are being warned they might find unusual numbers of lethargic or dead lobsters in their traps. The State Division of Marine Fisheries is blaming low oxygen levels in the water. That happens when surface waters heat up, creating different levels of water temperature and density in some areas of the ocean. The state says the recurring event is happening earlier in the season compared to past years. We'll have mostly clear skies tonight, temps in the mid-60s. Tomorrow looks like a great day for a dip in the ocean. It'll be around. 85 and mostly sunny. Mid-80s again for Sunday with a chance of showers and thunderstorms. This is 90.9 WBUR.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This
14: is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
10: And I'm Juana Summers. Ecuador is still in a state of emergency after the assassination of a leading presidential candidate. Fernando Villavicencio was shot in the head multiple times outside a campaign event on Wednesday. He was a vocal critic of organized crime and government corruption, and his death is the latest in a string of violent incidents in a country that used to have a peaceful reputation in the region. Joining me now to explain how Ecuador reached this shocking moment is Will Freeman. He's a Latin America Studies fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations. Will, welcome. Uh, Thanks, Juana. I just want to start off by asking you, what went through your mind when you first heard about Fernando Villavicencio's assassination?
20: It just struck me as so tragic. I was in Ecuador in April and May. You already feel when you're there that life has been turned on its head by this huge surge in crime since 2020. But what you're seeing now is it's not concentrated to one part of the country. No one is safe, not even a candidate running for president. And uh, you know, I think a growing number of Ecuadorians feel almost abandoned by their own state institutions uh, left to fend for themselves.
10: You mentioned a growing surge in crime since around 2020. What's the cause of that? Why is that happening?
20: Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a story that's been building for a while. People look at homicide rates shooting up since 2020, and sometimes they assume that that's when the crisis began. I'd argue that it began years earlier. Now there are several features of Ecuador that make it an ideal country for drug trafficking. And lately we've seen the amounts of cocaine trafficked through the country just uh, going through the roof. So one is that it's sandwiched between Colombia and Peru, two of the world's largest coca producers. Uh, Ecuador also has a dollarized economy. uh, That's very attractive for crime groups. It allows them to launder money easily. And uh, Ecuador also has just had a devastating experience with the COVID-19 pandemic. And with poverty and hunger spreading uh, it created a a big pool of recruits for organized crime but on the other side um it's also you know this crisis is a you know accumulation of serious uh, political blunders by president after president the armed forces and police and judiciary all became more susceptible to corruption to co-optation by organized crime and unfortunately what you see today is polarization between the left and right which is preventing ecuadorian politicians from coming together and finding a solution Uh, to this terrible crisis
10: Hmm. stepping back a bit here can you help us get a sense of the broader regional consequences of ecuador becoming more destabilized
20: Mm -hmm. well one that we're seeing throughout the region is even you know arriving to the u.s mexico border the fact that ecuadorians this year uh, have become the second largest group by nationality to cross panama's Darien gap in their path towards uh, migrating towards the united states so you're seeing really an outflow of migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, which we haven't seen from Ecuador in 20 years. So that's one major consequence. Another is that um, as Ecuador has become this hub for cocaine trafficking by criminal groups from as far away as Mexico, there are even Albanian criminal groups involved, Mm. it's really given organized crime in Latin America a new hub uh, to operate from, a new hotspot. Um, I think we're going to be seeing all sorts of reverberations across the region.
10: Election Day is still scheduled for August 20th. What will you be watching for as that day approaches?
20: Well, uh, first I'll be watching just in the short term for how this investigation advances. Uh, if we really get uh, new information that could, that could potentially impact the election itself. Um, Noticias Caracol, a Colombian news station, has reported that six of the suspects taken into custody in the killing of Yadisensio had cell phones on them, which had in those phones had recorded three calls to Ecuadorian politicians. Now we don't know yet the name of those politicians uh, this information has just been reported, not verified, but um, I think we need to really get to the bottom of whether there's potentially a political story behind behind this assassination to to some extent, uh, all the candidates will be scrambling to pick up the votes that the Viencio would have had, and I think all of them will be trying to you know, send a strong message on organized crime, show that they're the candidate that's best positioned to tackle impunity and um, resolve whatever happened in this in this terrifying incident.
10: That was Will Freeman. He's a Latin America Studies fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations. Will, thank you. Thank you, Juana. The
14: U.S. team is out of the Women's World Cup, dashing the hopes of many fans. But the Australian team, the Matildas, has advanced to the quarterfinals. On Saturday, they will play against France. And as NPR's Dia Hadid reports, Matilda mania is sweeping Australia.
0: Matilda mania has intensified.
16: I cried tears of pride watching our girls last night. We
0: should talk about the Matildas, they're driving
7: us all wild.
31: Matilda mania is everywhere these days in Australia. Stadiums are sold out. Some public viewing areas are at capacity. (laughs) The last match the Matildas played was the most watched event of the year on television so far. Saturday's quarterfinal is expected to be even bigger, effectively forcing the country's most popular football code, the AFL, to delay the start of their own big Saturday matches so they don't overlap with the Matildas. The code is also negotiating with FIFA to broadcast the Matildas game to tens of thousands of fans in their stadiums as a curtain raiser. Patricia Carvelis, one of Australia's leading journalists, had this to say.
3: Remember when they used to say no one wanted to watch women play sport? Apparently everyone wants to watch women play sport at the elite level. Observers
31: credit the cut through to the Matildas' newfound visibility. The Women's World Cup is broadcast in prime time. Games are in large stadiums. Merchandise is everywhere. And the players themselves are charismatic, tough and talented.
7: The audience was always there. It's just never been catered to, if you like.
31: Fiona Crawford wrote a history of the Matildas. She says this moment took decades to come. For a Women's Invitational World Cup 35 years ago, the players stitched their own logos onto hand-me-down men's jerseys. They funded their trip with bake sales. One year, the team posed naked for a calendar to drum up media attention. A turning point was in 2015 when the women went on strike, forcing sports officials to pay attention. A few years later, they achieved pay parity with the men's team. Crawford again.
7: That's why this tournament is so significant and why we're all feeling so emotional. It's that for so long we've been told there's no value, there's no market, there's no audience. But you can't help but wonder, could we have been here a little bit sooner?
31: That question could we have been here a little bit sooner, is bringing up mixed feelings for many women as they watch the Matildas. Yeah, it's regret and it's envy as well. Van Badum is a columnist for The Guardian. She wrote a piece about her joy and sadness watching the Matildas. She says it wasn't just about watching the players, it was also watching the girls cheer them on, their faces painted with the Matilda's green and gold colours. They were screaming and leaping on their seats. Nobody was policing them, telling them to be more ladylike. Nobody was telling them to settle pedal. There was finally this cultural moment where these girls could be themselves. And that really brought it all home to me. I burst into tears. A cultural moment, Badam says, where girls can be themselves, where female athletes are celebrated, a moment that she and so many other women missed. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Fremantle.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Out in Glendale, California, there is a battle going on, a fight to try to ward off the wildfire season that ravages an average of nearly 400,000 acres, and it's being waged by goats. NPR's Vanessa Romo spent a day with the four-legged firefighters.
32: On a recent 94-degree day, about 300 goats are spread out along the foothills and steep ridges of the Verdugo Mountains, which loom over multi-million dollar homes. The goats are on duty. They're chomping away on the dried-out vegetation that's exploded after this year's drought-busting rains. Over two weeks, they've devoured 14 acres of Glendale's dead grasses, scrubby bushes, and heaps of California's most invasive plants.
4: I don't know how their digestive systems deal with it, but they do.
32: That's Michael Choi, and these are his goats. His service, Fire Grazing Inc., uses herds of goats to clear brush from flatlands and hard-to-climb terrain. And even after all these years, he's still confounded by how the goats make such easy work of prickly and painful plants, particularly star thistle.
4: If you try and weed whack it, you wind up getting poked in the face and all over the body but goats will come up to that and they'll just eat it
9: up because it tastes good to them.
32: Choi's company is busier than ever this year. Massive downpours led to more plant growth, which has led to greater demand. And that's extended his season by a couple of months, potentially to early October. He's even had to buy more goats. He's now up to 900 overall. Targeted grazing goes back centuries, though in the modern era, it's been pushed aside by machines and chemical herbicides. But Following the unrelenting barrage of blazes, which have ravaged millions of acres in recent years, it's become a bigger part of California's strategy to reduce wildfire risk. Patty Mundo, vegetation management inspector for the Glendale Fire Department, says the goats were brought in to create a fire break, or a buffer.
24: We've had many fires in that that exact same hillside where the goats are. So once the fire reaches that buffer, it'll stop, or at the very least, slow it
32: down. If it were up to her, she'd lease the herd for a much longer stretch. But there's just not enough money. The city owns about 500 parcels of land. And with the budget that's allocated to fire prevention, $76,000, they can only afford to clear a fraction of it every year. Still, Mundo says the goats are far cheaper than brush crews, which rely on power tools, need fuel, and sometimes have to dump excess vegetation into a landfill. In contrast, all the goats need is water, mineral and salt blocks, and in this case, a large Anatolian shepherd dog to ward off coyotes at night. They can also
24: work in this hot weather with, uh, you know, no issues.
32: Lynn Hunsinger, a professor of rangeland ecology and management at UC Berkeley, says wildlife prevention demands creativity.
3: It's sort of like you're an artist with a palette.
29: And depending on the situation and your goals, You get to pick
7: the right tool for the right job.
32: For her, that means combining prescribed fire and grazing, which can permanently alter the landscape for the better.
4: Come on down. Come here. Come here, there's food.
32: Back in Glendale, Choice getting ready to move the goats to their next job, and then the next. And then there's next year, which he hopes will be just as busy. Vanessa Romo, NPR News.
14: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And thanks for being with us here at WBUR as you start your evening. Coming up, just after the top of the hour, thousands of people displaced by the wildfires in Maui need to find a place to stay. In sports, Chris Sale returns to pitch for the Red Sox tonight as they take on the Tigers at Fenway. Sale has spent 10 weeks on the injured list after fracturing a shoulder blade. The Sox gained some ground in the wildcard race last night. They're four games back from a playoff spot and have 47 games left to play. Looks like a beautiful start to the weekend. Temps will dip to the mid-60s tonight, and it'll be mainly clear. Then sunshine tomorrow, highs in the mid-80s. Sunday, a chance of showers and thunderstorms, but it should be partly sunny for at least some of the day, with temps around 86. This is 90.9 WBUR.
23: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by J Arts, with Be the Change, a public art and social justice movement, now open in the Fenway. Get inspired. More at jartsboston.org slash be the change.
21: It's time for another Beach Book Recommendation from
12: WBUR. Here's Hannah Ali.
6: The Half of It by Juliet Fay is a modern novel about long-lost love and heartbreak. 58-year-old Helen Spencer is staying with her daughter's family in the fictional town of Belham, Massachusetts, following the deaths of her husband and elderly mother. But when she bumps into a familiar face from high school, their conversations reopen old wounds Helen had been ignoring. In the half of it, Faye navigates complicated emotions like regret, forgiveness, and grief in a way that feels authentic. If you're looking for a slow burn, slow like a 40-year-long love story, the half of it is all of it.
12: To get weekly book recommendations just like this, send straight to your inbox. Subscribe to our free newsletter at wbr.org slash
14: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
21: And I'm Scott Detrow. For decades, one of the most legendary private collections of early blues music was just that, private. Now, it's available for everyone's ears.
4: This is a collection that was just, it was known as the monster. That's blues musician Dom Flemings. You know, you always hear that for each musician that recorded, there were, you know, dozens if not hundreds that didn't record. This is the first time that you're seeing an archive that proves this point. The
21: archive is a collection of 590 reels of sound recordings and 165 boxes of manuscripts, interviews, notes, photos, playbills, and posters. All of it collected by a man named Mac McCormick, a blues researcher and ethnographer who spent years zigzagging through Texas and the American South in search of great artists to record.
4: People like um, Joel Hopkins, who was Lightning Hopkins' brother. There's some amazing recordings of him. And then there's also another fellow, a Bongo Joe, or George Coleman, who was a um, a very eccentric, uh, he called himself the original rapper.
30: You vote for me, we have no more White House, we have a Black House! (laughs)
4: That's what's something that uh, makes this archive so worthwhile is it just opens up a whole new world. A
21: whole new world that's now accessible to everyone. Well, a sampling of it at least on a new box set from Smithsonian Folkways called Playing for the Man at the Door. Field recordings from the collection of Mac McCormick, 1958 to 1971. Flemons wrote an essay for the album and John Troutman of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History helped produce it. I asked Troutman how Mac McCormick was able to find and record all of these incredible artists.
5: Mac documented everything, and often, when he was officially working as a census taker or as a cab driver, would just begin to um, knock on doors. This was a really remarkable and challenging interaction because he was visiting um, these segregated neighborhoods and people in these neighborhoods. and. That interaction is filled with power dynamics and yeah. in, the, in the 1960s, you know, at the height of the tensions around that period of the civil rights movement, for a white stranger to knock on um, black folks' doors was a moment that could be filled with a great deal of tension.
21: And not just a white stranger, sometimes in his role as a census taker, a white stranger in the role of of a federal official, somebody with some power. Exactly.
5: And so it really um, created a circumstance where he was creating a a vulnerability, essentially, by knocking on their doors in in an official capacity, to your point. But he also really recognized exactly this dynamic. I mean, he understood it. He often um, spoke of his repulsion for these Jim Crow protocols that were mapping out the landscape of what he called greater Texas, Texas and Louisiana and Arkansas, where he was primarily working at this time. And also had a great deal of respect during this period for these musicians. He, he knew of them and knew as much about them as he could before he knocked on their doors. And in many cases, folks gave him a chance and let him in.
21: Dom, what do you make of all, all the layers that, that, that go into the way that, that Mac McCormick assembled all these recordings?
4: Well, you know, you have to think about it. And I tell people this all the time that very rare is the moment when you just put a microphone in front of somebody and you can get amazing folkloric information and cultural information from them. You know, I, I have to say I, I have to tip my hat to them for going out to the neighborhoods and taking the time to find musicians that up to that point are only relegated to a piece of shellac.
21: Yeah. You've both mentioned that this was this legendary collection that loomed over the folklore scene, over the over the blues scene. You knew it was out there, but not many people had heard it. I'm wondering if you could pick out one of the musicians that we hear from in this collection and why it was so exciting to hear this person and hear this music.
4: Well, one of the musicians that I found to be so exciting to hear were was this, one of the Songsters that was so well known, a fellow by the name of Mance Lipscomb. (laughs) And while there are many recordings of Mance Lipscomb out there, one of the songs that really just sort of moved me was hearing a recording of the song So Different Blues. And after playing the song on these recordings on the box set, he plays the song and then you hear Mac talk to Mance a little bit afterward. And Mance says, you're the first guy to ever hear this song. i would never recorded it. How long ago did you write that?
5: Oh, I've been at that, oh, maybe five years ago. Nobody have not got it, I think, on on the recording
4: yet. Really? And nobody got it on the recording. I'm glad we got it. That's the best
8: thing I've ever
13: heard you do.
4: It's a lot of work in it. So you take a song that uh, Manch would become a little bit more well-known for during the folk revival, and this is the first moment when there's someone that puts a microphone in front of this man and co- and collects the song so that it could be saved for posterity.
21: I, I want to ask about the, the one other big complicated aspect of, uh, of all of this here, and that's the fact that for so many years, McCormick kept these recordings to himself. Do you think... McCormick owed it to the musicians he recorded to to make some of this public earlier or do you think once he had that recording it was it was his right to keep it to himself if he wanted to
4: I don't necessarily think he had an obligation because he as an individual went out there recorded it and it was his right to do whatever he pleased with the recordings but I think that now that it's out of his hands we can now interpret the recordings and and release them and and use them for documentation's sake and I think that that's something that um, I don't think that's something that Mac could have done by himself.
5: I think that's right, and in terms of him doing it by himself, that ended up being one of his great challenges in life. Mac had great ambition, but Mac also lived with depression and paranoia. They seemed to be clearly manifestations of a bipolar disorder, and um, it was a great challenge for him to pursue these releases and to pursue the publication of his writings as well. And, you know, to his daughter Susanna Nix's credit, she always saw the value of of these recordings. And it was her ambition through donating his archive to the Smithsonian that
21: the public would gain access to the archive and to the recordings. That's John Troutman of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History and a producer of the new album, Playing for the Man at the Door, field recordings from the collection of Mac McCormick, 1958 to 1971. We've also been speaking to blues musician Dom Flemons, who contributed an essay to the collection. Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it.
17: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Start your weekend here tomorrow. The Teamsters union reached a tentative deal with UPS. Now rank-and-file union members are voting on whether to approve the contract. The details of the deal and wait, wait, tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies are on tap for tonight. We'll have a low around 64 degrees, mid-80s for tomorrow with sunshine. Sunday should be partly sunny, but might bring some showers and thunderstorms. We'll have a high around 86 that day. Monday looks mostly sunny with highs in the mid-80s. It's 82 degrees in Boston on this Friday evening. This is 90.9 WBUR.
21: I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Firefighters continue to put out wildfires on the Hawaiian island of Maui. That as dozens of people have been killed and thousands displaced by the wildfires need to find a place to stay. It's Friday, August 11th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lynn Joliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Conservative online media company PragerU admits its goal is indoctrination. Florida teachers are now able to use the company's videos in their classes, and some parents oppose the move.
2: I think it's great when children see multiple perspectives, but if you're pushing one perspective as being fact, that is problematic.
0: Also ahead, a cancer survivor who is Columbia's brightest star in the Women's World Cup will have tips for the best meteor gazing and fun, food and politics at the Iowa Fair. It's 6.01. The news is first.
12: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In fire-ravaged areas of Maui, officials are allowing some people to return to survey the damage. Firefighters say much of the fire is under control there now, though rescue teams continue to search for additional victims, with at least 55 people known dead and many still unaccounted for. Stephanie Evans says she and her sons were evacuated and says she was told much of the town of Lahaina is gone. It
7: wasn't until about
17: eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night that we got word from our neighbor who's a firefighter and he said it's all gone. All of our homes are gone.
12: The wildfires in Hawaii are the state's deadliest disaster since 1961 when a tsunami killed 61 people. Many survivors of the wildfires say there was little to no warning. Nevada is among the jurisdictions sending a search and rescue team to the Hawaiian Island of Maui. Yvette Fernandez from member station KNPR is more.
29: The Nevada Task Force, which includes emergency responders from several local jurisdictions and a canine unit, are part of Nevada's only urban search and rescue team. Chief John Steinbeck with the Clark County Fire Department says the team has deployed to many disasters, but this one is especially heartfelt because so many Hawaiians make Las Vegas their home away from home.
5: Las Vegas is the ninth island, as we all know. We have a kindred spirit with the people of Hawaii. Steinbeck says Hawaii had some specific requests. What they've asked us for is specifically search dogs and search personnel. The
29: search dogs include a lab and a golden retriever. One is trained to find people alive. The other is trained to locate human remains. For NPR News, I'm Yvette Fernandez in Las Vegas.
12: On the day the Illinois Supreme Court upheld a state law new sales of some assault-style weapons. Vice President Kamala Harris was in Chicago. Member station WBEZ reporter Alex Degman has more.
21: The vice president told an audience at an Every Town for Gun Safety event that children today are too familiar with active shooter drills and what to do during them, which is traumatizing for many.
30: I've had young students on this issue talk with me and say things like, I really don't like going to fifth period. And I said, well, why, sweetheart, why don't you want to go to fifth period? Because in that classroom, there's no closet.
21: Harris continued to push the Biden administration's proposal for a federal assault weapons ban, despite the widely held view that legislation outlining such a ban would not pass in a divided Congress. For NPR News, I'm Alex Dagman in Springfield, Illinois.
12: After apparent breakdown in plea bargain talks, Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss as special counsel to continue the prosecution of President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden has agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor offenses related to his filing of federal income taxes and a gun charge. However, a judge rejected the plea deal in the case. On Wall Street today. The Dow closed up 105 points. The Nasdaq was down 93 points. This is NPR.
0: And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Four former foster children have reached a $7 million settlement with the state over allegations of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. They lived with an Oxford couple who are facing charges for allegedly abusing their foster kids over nearly two decades. The plaintiffs accused the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families of failing to protect them despite repeated allegations against the couple. Attorney Sam Perkins represents the victims.
23: The state is now acknowledged, both by apologies and by this settlement, that the cases were mishandled. DCF did not do its job, Has meant a lot to our clients, and gives us some cause for hope in the future about whether DCF will improve the way it treats situations like this.
0: A DCF spokesperson tells WCVB the department has updated its policies and changed the roles assigned to social workers to better protect foster children and support foster parents. In the fiscal year that concluded in June, Massachusetts collected just over $39 billion in tax revenue. That's nearly $2 billion less than the state took in during the prior fiscal year. The state revenue commissioner says the drop is largely due to a decrease in capital gains taxes collected. Well, if you need to stock up on school supplies or buy something big like a fridge or washing machine, this might be the weekend to do it. Massachusetts sales tax holiday is tomorrow and Sunday. Most retail items under $2,500 will be tax-free. Items such as cars and boats do not qualify. And you still have to pay excise taxes on tobacco, alcohol, and marijuana products. Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor Driscoll today visited small businesses in North Andover that were damaged by flooding this week. Some owners say it will be months before they can reopen. Massachusetts is getting $275,000 from the federal government to help protect beachgoers from unhealthy water. The Environmental Protection Agency says the funds will help with monitoring and public notification programs at public beaches. Taking a look at the forecast tonight should be mostly clear. We'll have a low in the mid-60s. Tomorrow looks like the pick of the weekend, mostly sunny, around 85 degrees. A chance of rain and thunderstorms, but partly sunny on Sunday. This is 90.9 WBUR.
16: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org.
14: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
10: And I'm Juana Summers. The death toll from the extreme wildfires on Maui has risen to at least 55 people, a number that officials say they expect will rise. And officials are still taking stock of the damage there. Yesterday, Hawaii's governor, Josh Green, said that many hundreds of homes have been destroyed. And while it will take time to know the full extent of the damage, he expects the cost to be in the billions of dollars. Six shelters are open on the island and thousands of displaced people will need housing. NPR's Lauren Sommer is in Maui and spoke to people at an evacuation center. Hi, Lauren. Hi there. Lauren, these fires just moved at a shocking speed. What are people there telling you about what it was like for them?
11: Yeah, I think shocking is really the right word. Um, people are very much feeling that. I, I spoke to several residents from Lahaina, which is the town where the fire was just so destructive and people lost their lives. One of them, um, Paul, who didn't want to give his last name because there's just so much overwhelming media attention, he said the flames are moving incredibly fast.
13: Jump house to house, all the plants, all the streets, the smoke was so big. And actually they were saying the radio, remain calm, everything's fine. Well, everything was warning, so no.
11: He jumped in the car and left, but he says he's not surprised that people got trapped, just given
10: how narrowly he got out. Wow. Does he know yet what's happened to his home or the homes of his neighbors?
11: Yeah, I actually talked to him at the evacuation center at Maui High School. There are several hundred people there and there's actually this big TV up with the news playing and it's it's showing aerial footage of what Lahaina looks like now. So that's how we found out that his home is gone. I mean, even as we were staying there, he could point to the screen to show me the exact block which was his and it was just rubble. That's just devastating.
10: Lauren, do we have any idea
11: yet how many people are still missing? There's actually a a big list of names at the shelter, maybe a thousand names on it of people that are being searched for. And and many have been found on that list, but there's still a lot that are unknown. Um, Ted Lusk was searching the list there. He has two tenants in Lahaina.
4: I have a family and uh, the wife is uh, Hopai, as we say in Hawaii, pregnant, uh, eight months now. And we talked to him two days ago, but they had no idea that it would proceed to disastrous effects.
11: He's hopeful they're okay based on where they live, but he's not sure because the power has been out near Lahaina and communication has been really tough.
10: I mean, I think a big question that a lot of people have is just how the fatality count could be so devastating. You work with our climate desk and I know that you have covered a lot of fires. Mm -hmm. Do we know what it was about these fires specifically that made them so dangerous and so deadly. Yeah, I mean, wind was certainly a big part
11: of it. It was at least 60 miles per hour, um, and that's what can cause a wildfire to move so quickly. The trade winds are a normal part of Hawaii, but in this case, Hurricane Dora was passing south of the islands, and that created a big difference in air pressure, which led to those high winds. I mean, certainly the fires with big fatalities in the Western US, like the Camp Fire in California in 2018, those also had really dangerous winds. But then the other factor is what's there to burn. And Maui does have landscapes that are very flammable.
10: Right, and I mean, many of us learning this week that wildfires are not uncommon in Hawaii. So where does the greatest risk come from then?
11: Yet these are naturally drier sides of the island, and the land has changed quite a bit in some places because it was converted into fields like for sugarcane and pineapples. Um, I talked to Clay Traurnicht, who is an ecosystem specialist at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, and he says, you know, as agriculture has shrunk, those former fields have been overrun by invasive grasses.
5: When I'm talking grasslands, I'm not talking about kind of like knee-high Prairie. This is like waste to overhead tropical grasses, um, which are going to obtain amazing amounts of, of biomass. And so when they burn, um, they burn really explosively.
11: That's a big risk, especially as climate change makes it hotter and drier. So if Hawaii is going to reduce that risk, dealing with those fuels is, is going to be key.
10: Lauren Sommer from NPR's Climate Desk reporting from Maui. Lauren, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Florida is the
14: first state to approve videos made by PragerU kids for use in public schools. The content is geared toward conservative values. It includes videos animated in a way that is appealing to kids. As Carrie Sheridan from Member Station
15: WUSF reports, teachers can now use it as they see fit. Prager U is not an accredited university. It presents itself as educational, but it's primarily an online media organization. Prager U Kids produces these catchy short videos. Here's an intro to one of them
16: Prager U Kids is dedicated to teaching what most schools aren't our American values, history, and blessings.
15: In another video, slavery is portrayed as just something normal for its time. It even shows a recreation of Frederick Douglass, who escaped slavery and became an abolitionist in the 1800s.
12: There was no real movement anywhere in the world to abolish slavery before the American founding. Slavery was part of life all over the world. It was America that began the conversation to end it.
15: But the video ignores that Denmark, Britain, and France had already outlawed the trading of slaves while slavery continued here. According to Vice News, two of the main funders of PragerU are fracking industry billionaires Dan and Ferris Wilkes. And PragerU Kids has a video questioning the origin of climate change. In this one, a narrator sets up a conversation between a girl and her parents. But when her anxiety gets high and she tells them that fossil fuels will soon lead
7: to a climate disaster, they challenge her with some thought-provoking questions. They encourage her to consider how the planet has been warming and cooling since prehistoric times, long before carbon emissions were a factor. Can she explain that?
15: The science of greenhouse gas emissions doesn't come up in this video. Jessica Wright, vice president of the Florida Freedom to Read Project, says the videos have elements that are accurate, but sometimes they mix in opinions and skip over important facts. I think that a lot of educators who
17: have a traditional education background or they've been in the profession for a long time, they're going to be able to recognize in those materials that Prager used representing what we would refer to as a logical fallacy, meaning... The material that you're reading or listening to might sound like it makes sense, but if you are educated on that topic, you would know that they came to a conclusion that's
15: not based on fact. Wright says Florida's endorsement of Prager U Kids means this content could easily make its way into classrooms because it's free, easily accessible, and teachers don't have to ask permission.
5: But in the state of Florida, we're proud to stand for education, not indoctrination in our schools.
15: That's Governor Ron DeSantis. His Department of Education gave the green light for Prager U Kids in July, the same month its founder, conservative radio host Dennis Prager, said this.
18: We bring doctrines to children. That's a very fair statement. I said, but what is the bad of our indoctrination?
15: A spokeswoman for the Florida Department of Education said in an email that they've reviewed Prager U Kids and determined the material aligns to Florida's revised civics and government standards. She described PragerU kids as quote, no different than many other resources. Some parents like Michelle Posey, a conservative who's running for the state house, say PragerU videos are just a counterforce to what she calls a liberal
19: agenda in schools. I used them as a tool in homeschooling my children. I have a right as the parent to drive that education the way I see fit, it should line up with what I believe.
15: No Florida school district has yet announced plans to use PragerU kids' videos, but they can't stop teachers from showing them either.
2: I do not want my kids exposed to this.
15: Absolutely not. Liz Barker is a mother of four in Sarasota. She says she plans to talk to her kids' teachers about her concerns.
2: I think it's great when children see multiple perspectives, but if you're pushing one perspective as being fact that is problematic.
15: Some public school advocates are urging parents to submit an opt-out form, letting teachers know they don't want their children to watch the videos. For NPR News, I'm Carrie Sheridan in Sarasota. Skywatchers should have a chance
10: to see bright streaks of light and even fireballs this weekend as the annual Perseid meteor shower reaches its peak activity. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce has some tips for how to catch the celestial fireworks.
7: The Perseids happen every summer when the Earth plows through a cloud of debris associated with a comet. The bits of comet stuff are tiny. They can be like a grain of sand. But when they hit the atmosphere at high speeds... Friction causes that stuff to heat up and it causes the air around it to glow. Michelle Nichols is director of public observing with the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. She says this year, the Perseids should put on a good show. Mainly because the moon isn't going to interfere. The moon will be just a little sliver, so skies should be nice and dark. Viewing should be best in the late night hours of Saturday and into the pre-dawn hours of Sunday when the shower reaches its peak. Robert Lunsford is with the American Meteor Society. He says all you have to do is go outside, sit in a nice chair, get comfortable, then look about halfway up the sky and give your eyes at least 30 minutes to adapt to the darkness.
20: Sometimes you'll see fireballs of different colors, That leave a uh, trail in the sky for up to a minute or so, and uh,
7: it's very cool. The chance of seeing fireballs is also a big draw for Jackie Faraday. She's an astronomer at New York City's Hayden Planetarium. One can come
1: that will shake you to your core. It, like, scares you.
7: She says the main thing you need to bring to a meteor shower is patience. You
1: cannot just be out there for 10 minutes. You have to commit to being there.
7: Because meteors don't come at a steady pace. Some hours will have hardly any, and then a whole slew will come.
1: This is not about a quick, you know, awesome glance up and you see it and you're done. You have to dedicate. And really, 45 minutes to an hour is my recommended minimum.
7: She says two hours is way better.
1: Like, get a glass of wine or a bottle. Sit out there for a while. Give the sky a chance to entertain you. The
7: Perseids will last
1: until the end of August.
7: The very best views will come in places away from city lights, assuming the skies are clear. If it's cloudy, just try another night. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News.
14: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. On Wall Street today, the Dow picked up 0.3 percent. The S&P slipped 0.1 percent. NASDAQ dropped half a percent. In local business news, Mass General Brigham is reporting an increase in revenue and operating income in the third quarter of its fiscal year. MGB reported income of $69 million. That's a big change from the same time last year when it reported a loss of $120 million because of high inflation and labor costs. Leaders of the health system say those costs have stabilized. MGB collected almost $5 billion in revenue in the third quarter, a 15% jump from that quarter last year. It's the largest hospital system in the state. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help
7: students get into their top-choice colleges. Prompts one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com/NPR.
21: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org/cars.
0: In sports, Chris Sale returns to pitch for the Red Sox tonight as they face the Tigers at Fenway. Sale has spent 10 weeks on the injured list after fracturing a shoulder blade. The Sox gained some ground in the wildcard race last night. They're four games back from a playoff spot and have 47 games left to play. Looks like a beautiful start to the weekend. Temps will dip to the mid-60s tonight. It'll be mainly clear. Then sunshine tomorrow, highs in the mid-80s. Sunday will have a chance of showers and thunderstorms, but it should be partly sunny for at least some of the day with temps around 86. Monday, temperatures in the mid-80s under mostly sunny skies. Right now, it's 82 degrees in Boston. You're listening to WBUR. Support
17: for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. Easycater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise
14: Kelly. Attending the Iowa State Fair has been a presidential rite of passage for decades. The first in the nation, Iowa caucuses will be crucial for any candidate working to siphon away Donald Trump's lead in Republican polls. But this year's fair comes as Trump faces a number of indictments. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters reports.
13: (laughs) Most people don't go to the Iowa State Fair to see politicians. It's the food, the livestock, the concerts at the grandstand. Jessica Manuel just moved here from Arizona and likes the horticulture exhibits.
6: Flowers, those are way beautiful. All those huge fruits, vegetables that people grow. We don't have that in Arizona, so
17: it's really cool to see that stuff.
13: She and her partner Chris Laurie are standing near the Iowa State Capitol in Des Moines, watching the parade that kicks things off. Lori is from Iowa and just moved back. He says the politicking at the fair is pretty ridiculous. It's a rare opportunity
21: because they like, play like they're regular people. Grab a corn dog and you're one of us.
13: The GOP candidates will have plenty of time to sample fried food as the caucuses stand to have an outsized role in 2024. Iowa's Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, is welcoming all of them here. We are okay,
6: gonna take care of each other.
13: On the opening day, she flips pork burgers at a grill with North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. She's invited all of them to sit with her for public interviews she's dubbed Fairside Chats. Reynolds has appeared with all the candidates this year, and she's remaining neutral for now.
22: When I'm inviting them here and asking them to go to all 99 counties, get out in the state, talk to Iowans, uh, they're not going to do that if they feel like, you know, they've, they don't have a fair
13: shot at it. Former President Donald Trump is not doing that. He has not spent nearly as much time in the state as the others and has expressed frustration with Reynolds for not endorsing him. Yet when it comes to Trump's mounting indictments, including for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss, Reynolds repeats a similar Republican refrain that won't insult his loyal base.
22: I think we have a weaponized uh, Department of Justice and IRS and FBI, and I think we're seeing that. I think Americans feel that there is a 2 tier justice system.
13: The charges were recommended by a grand jury of Trump's peers in Florida and Washington. And for all the traditional aspects of the fair, there's never been one with a presidential frontrunner who's been indicted multiple times. Trump's challengers have mostly avoided calling him out directly in Iowa. He still has a lot of support among Republicans in the state. His former vice president, Mike Pence, didn't mention him while taking a question about his role on January 6th.
23: that's a fair question. Look, come on, people. That's
13: why I came. Pence told the crowd he obeyed what the Constitution requires, despite pressure from Trump and his attorneys. After his speech, he told reporters he hopes the former president shows up at the first Republican debate later this month in Milwaukee.
23: People ask me sometimes what what I think about maybe debating Donald Trump. I tell people I've debated Donald Trump a thousand times, just never with the cameras on.
13: Pence and many of the candidates are spending multiple days at the fair, hoping to get the attention of Iowans like Jill Crane. She stumbled upon the end of his speech and liked what she heard. She's not a fan of Trump and wants to find a candidate that can end the divisiveness in politics.
0: I just would love to see
24: candidates that are working very hard to changed the, the whole environment of politics right now. grew up in a Republican household. Loved, I thought it was a great party, but I can't stand it right now, to be honest.
13: But the former president's grip on the party remained clear as Pence strolled the concourse following his speech. Several fairgoers decked out in Trump gear were shouting at him. Pence is a traitor! The top Republican candidates will be here tomorrow. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will appear with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, And with another potential indictment looming, Trump will also be here, looking to overshadow his rivals who are spending more of their time in Iowa. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines.
10: Colombia is the last team from the Americas still in the Women's World Cup. Tomorrow morning, they'll play England in Sydney's quarterfinals. This is the furthest Colombian soccer has ever advanced on the international stage. As Jorge Valencia reports from Bogota, the team is led in part by a teenager who may become the tournament's breakout star.
25: The Colombian striker Linda Caicedo scored one of the most magical goals of the tournament. It was against Germany last week. She caught a rebound from the left edge of the penalty box, zigzagged between two defenders, and curled the ball into the top right corner of the goal. We're not going to play a recording because somebody else has strict broadcasting rights and they have really good lawyers. But the official Columbia narrator yelled one of those epic... Goals for 16 seconds, and fans here in Colombia were up early before work, before school, watching in astonishment.
9: It's, it's a spectacular.
25: Maria Alejandra Useche garcia is a fan here in Bogota. She and her friend Paula Ortiz Sanchez play together in an academy called Future Soccer. They're both 14 years old, and Ortiz says that for them, this World Cup is historic.
6: It's like really representative for our country. It makes us, as women, feel like we can play soccer without something that they would say about us, like something bad.
25: Joseche says that growing up in a country like Colombia, where a national women's team didn't officially exist until 30-some years ago, where a professional women's league didn't exist until six years ago, girls face a lot of stereotypes.
5: Like, girls are not made for playing football or it's just for boys.
25: Oh really, does anybody ever say that to you?
5: Yeah. Yeah, when I was a little kid.
25: Really? Yes. In the
5: school. Who said that? In the school and uh, boys from other teams.
25: Those were barriers that Colombia's wonder kid, Linda Caicedo, who's barely 18, faced when she was growing up near the city of Cali. As a child, her parents initially could only place her in an all-boys academy, but by the time she was 10, she was standing out no matter where she played, says former coach John Albert Ortiz Arce. One, because of her innate talent and agility. But also, Ortiz says, because she had character. He says he could see her discipline when she started being asked for interviews. Here she is after a match in a South America tournament in Paraguay. She was 14. Her interviewer asked her if she was excited to make friends from other countries.
0: No. La verdad no vinimos
14: como
2: buscar amigas.
25: No, Caicedo said. We didn't come here to make friends. We came here to focus on our objective. A year later, at age 15, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Former coach Ortiz says Caicedo thought she wouldn't play again. She survived through her faith and determination, he says, something that shows the kind of character she has. Natalia Prieto directs the women's soccer website Femina Futbol. Now, Prieto says, the Colombian Soccer Federation is bragging about Caicedo and the women's team. The players, though, she says, have earned their merits not because of them, but despite them. And they're inspiring younger players, like Paula Ortiz Sanchez. She says she wants to keep playing forever.
6: Professionally in in big leagues, such as Spain League or English League.
25: Just like Linda Caicedo, who this year signed on to play with Real Madrid in Spain. For NPR News, I'm Jorge Valencia in Bogotá.
0: This is NPR News. Next on Marketplace, strong demand for oil and the recent OPEC oil cuts will likely keep pushing up the price of gas through the end of the year. But could those high prices last longer? And tomorrow morning, the D.C. Public Library picked winners of its third annual Dinosaur Roaring Contest. Listen for the roars, stay for the fun facts about how dinosaurs didn't roar. That's tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Keep listening when you wake up. Clear skies tonight, sunny and mid 80s tomorrow. Marketplace is next.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. And the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture with GoldFest, a celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, tomorrow. boston.gov goldfestival.